for Sunday. That's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Follow us on Twitter at NPRATC or follow me at NPRMICHEL. We thank you for listening. We hope you'll stay safe and have a great week. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2021 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. WAMU 88.5, where the big broadcast is up next in just a moment, so please stand by. Hi, I'm Esther Chamakili. Want an inside look at how the reporters, editors, and producers at WAMU cover our region? Want to know how our on-air broadcasts and podcasts are made? Join us for Behind the Scenes at WAMU with Kojo Namdi. We'll also celebrate Kojo's 23 years on air. That's Wednesday, April 28th at 7 p.m. Visit wamu.org slash events to register. Support for WAMU comes from Reduce Energy Use DC. You can take steps to reduce energy use and save money while helping fight climate change by taking the Reduce Energy Use DC pledge. Learn more at reduceenergyusedc.com. University of Maryland Global Campus. Offering bachelor's and master's degrees for today's in-demand careers. Learn more at umgc.edu. Certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV. 63 degrees in Frederick right now. 63 also in Great Falls. Hey, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James. Thanks so much for joining us. The big broadcast is up next. This is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5 and at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, or at 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. Tonight, dark doings on The Whistler, John Steele Adventurer, and Suspense, with a thriller from the masterful author of Sorry, Wrong Number, Lucille Fletcher. Lum and Abner take on postal reform. Yes, you heard me correctly. There's an elusive sport coat on Dragnet, a skeptical Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke, and just in time for this Saturday's Kentucky Derby, Jack Benny buys a racehorse. With all that we've got going on, you need to relax. Clear your mind of any lingering worries from last week. It's over. And take a long pause before starting to fret about the week to come. It doesn't really start till tomorrow. Instead, put your imagination in gear here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast.
The term B-girls has evolved somewhat, but back in the day, it referred to the women working in bars engaged in the somewhat sordid practice of flirting with male customers and encouraging them to buy drinks. The bartender would usually water down the drinks of the B-girl. One of them appears as a character in an episode called The Very Fishy Matter from January 15, 1961, CBS and the series Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, my name is Jarvis, Theodore Jarvis. Jarvis. Yes, I'm the local representative for Greater Southwest Insurance Company here in Las Vegas. Oh, yes, that fabulous town of the fast buck. I beg your pardon? And I think of all the money I have won and lost over the gaming tables in that town of yours. I know what you mean. Tell me, how's the weather there in Connecticut? The weather? Yes. Well, cold is a... Oh, why do you want to know about the weather? Well, it's so nice and warm and comfortable here. Be a nice change for you, wouldn't it? Well, of course it would. I hate this cold weather. But unless you have some insurance matter that you want me to investigate... It's a matter of the utmost importance, Dollar. Can you fly out here right away? Sure, why not? Good. On, uh, one condition. What's that? That you'll guarantee me the time and a chance to drop a fishing line in Lake Mead or, uh, over Lake Mojave. Dollar, that's exactly what I want you to do. You want me out there to go fishing? To go fishing, among other things. Yeah, like what other things? Mainly just to go fishing. Oh, sure. With a very beautiful and a very charming young lady. Is that so? Who also happens to be very, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Well, Jarvis, you make this sound more attractive every... Now, wait a minute. Is this some kind of a gag? I'm absolutely serious. Well? On expense account? Practically unlimited. Well, that does it, Jarvis. I'm on my way. <laughs> CBS Radio brings you Bob Reddick in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Greater Southwest Insurance Company, Las Vegas office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the very fishy matter. Yeah, there was something very fishy about this being called all the way out there just to go fishing. There had to be. But after all, it would give me a chance to get away from the freezing weather here in Hartford... And who knows? Maybe I would have a chance to wet a line in Lake Mead or Mojave. So item one on the expense account is $170.40 for a nighttime flight to Los Angeles. Item two is $21.10 for the plane that dropped me off in Vegas shortly after breakfast the next morning. Item three, $4 even for a cab into the office of Theodore Jarvis on Fremont Street. Ted was in his mid-thirties, but a mite too serious about his job. You want to talk about it right here in the office, Dollar? Well, why not? Let's face it, Ted. It's one of the few places in town that doesn't have a slot machine or a craps table or roulette or blackjack. I guess the business offices and the churches are just about the only places where one can't gamble. Fortunes are won and lost every day here in Las Vegas, Dollar. Yes, I can believe that. Which is one of the reasons you're here. I thought it was to go fishing. It is. Because of the Birdwell fortune. I should say because of Miss Lisa Birdwell's fortune. Is that the young, attractive, charming... Yes, that's the girl I told you about over the phone. You'll love her, darling. Better than fishing. 
I beg your pardon? Well, first you dragged me out here on the promise of some good fishing. Exactly. Now it sounds as though you want to throw me into the arms of some doll. Both. I don't get you. I said both. She is a doll, and I want you to go fishing with her. Where? On Lake Mojave, about 90 miles south of here. Great. Oh, you're familiar with it? Oh, I know it like the back of my hand. Ted, I can take you to more good spots to pull in lunker bass on that lake. Excellent. Only, um, stop being so vague. Tell me what this is all about. Lisa Birdwell. Lisa Birdwell. Mm Mm-hmm. Until a few months ago, she was a school teacher up in Salt Lake City. A school teacher? That's right. And living and working among the good people of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's the Mormon church. Yes, I know. Go on, Ted. Well, she was very much interested. Seriously considered joining that church. Devoting her life to the kind of service they stand for. That is, until her father died and left her some money. How much? You see, Lisa was his only blood relation. How much, Ted? Oh, ten or twelve thousand dollars. Ten or twelve, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought you said she was rich. I thought... All right, all right. Go ahead. Being free from family ties for the first time in her life, being young and beautiful, she decided to take some time off and have herself a little fling. On $10,000? Yes. Until. Until what? Until, in the course of her travels, she happened to land here in Vegas, where suddenly one night she discovered what a roulette wheel is for. Oh. Knowing nothing whatsoever about the game, she calmly proceeded to run up one of the biggest scores on record. She what? She walked out of that casino with something over $400,000. No kidding. And, incidentally, that is the last time she ever gambled. A smart girl. Mm-hmm. Instead, she bought herself a little ranch out near the edge of town and took her foster brother. That's her only living relative. His name is uh, Tony Birdwell. Yeah. Took him along to sort of manage the place. And now, well, she's just making the most of life. Enjoying it to the fullest. Who wouldn't? When she isn't taking in the winter sports at the Charleston Mountains, some 35 miles northwest of here, she's fishing Lake Mead or Mojave in her yacht. Yacht? On one of those lakes? Prettiest 52-footer you ever saw. Right now, she has it down on Lake Mojave. Wow. Beautiful yacht, beautiful girl, lots of money. Let's go fishing. Exactly. But uh, why? I mean, from your standpoint. Because of that foster brother. Because if anything happens to her, he'll get everything she has. Her money, the ranch, and some 120000 of insurance. Are you trying to say you think he'd kill her for it? He himself? Never. He's not man enough. Well, then what? Have somebody else do it for him? Yes. Okay. Who? That's what I hope you can find out for us, Johnny. Before it's too late. That's why you've got to get down to Lake Mojave right away. Why? Because Tony has already arranged for Lisa to be murdered. What makes you think that this brother, this foster brother, Tony, has arranged to have Lisa murdered? Think? I'm sure of it. Why? Because of one of those things that can happen only once in a million times, Johnny. Go on. Last night, I tried to call Lisa at the ranch. The phone out there was in use, but instead of getting a busy signal, 
I could hear this voice, Tony's voice on that phone. He was saying... Okay, okay, just shut up and let me talk. Lisa's on her way down to the lake now, to Lake Mojave Resort. She plans to stay out on the boat several days with some friends, she told me. So you'll be along. You'll be one of them. But you don't get the ten grand until she's dead. So just make sure you do it right. I see. And you're sure it was Tony's voice, Ted? Yes. Could you recognize the voice of whoever he was talking to? Well, that's where I goofed, Johnny. I'm afraid I kind of gasped or something. And he must have heard me because he hung up. Mm -hmm. Fishing with some friends down there. Including whoever he was talking to. Yes. In other words, one of the people aboard that boat with her is there to kill her. That's right. Well, have you any idea? Right after I called you in Hartford, I called the Lake Mojave Resort and I talked to her. You warned her not to go out? Oh, well, she'd only have poo-pooed that idea, but I did ask her who'd be going along with her today. Yes. Who? Well, as usual, a real mixed crowd. And I've checked on all of them. Who, Ted? Jim Faree, a dealer at one of the casinos here in town. Faree? Yes, he's a drifter, not too good a reputation. And? A girl named Sadie Reese. She's a... Well, I'll call her a B girl. That's putting it kindly. For one of the questionable saloons in town. And? A Miss Clara Hinckley, a visiting school teacher that Lisa picked up somewhere. A school teacher on vacation at this time of year and here in Vegas? I wondered about that, too. Then there's Charles Schroeder. He's an elder in the Mormon church. An old friend from Salt Lake City. I think she met him here in town. And? Paul Holder. Now, who is he? He's the nice young kid who runs the boat for her. The rest of the time, he acts as a kind of a handyman at the ranch. Paul Holder. Yes. Pretty well mixed up crowd. Then she always puts the parties together that way. Who else, Ted? That's all. But well, one of them is there to kill her. So the sooner you get down there, Johnny. Ted? I'm on my way. Item four, the usual 50 bucks deposit on a rental car. I burned up Highway 95 through Henderson, Boulder City, and Searchlight, and then cut east on 77 to Davis Dam. There I turned north for three miles to Lake Mojave Resort. My old friend, Ham Pratt, general manager of the resort, was in his office down over the dock. And as always, when I told him what my job was, Ham offered 1,000% cooperation. Yeah, Johnny, at least Birdwell and her party took off only a couple of hours ago. And with enough groceries aboard that big cruiser to keep them for a week. Now, how will I spot that boat out there on the lake, Ham? Lisa, you can't miss it. It's beauty. All 52 feet of it. No other cruiser that big on the lake. And she uses that for fishing? And for living on when she's here, she and her friends. Any idea where she might have headed? Probably up toward the big basin, 10, 12 miles up. Okay, then. And she always does a lot of fishing in the, uh, the big coves on this side of the lake below the basin. Right, then. That's where... Now, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, Johnny? Are those people with her? Yeah. Uh, there's Jim Faree and Sadie Reese. You can have them both for my money. A uh, Miss Clara Hinckley. Well, she's a school teacher like Lisa used to be. Yes, I know. And a uh, Charles Schroeder. I understand he's an elder in the Mormon church. And they are all with her. Yeah. When did they get here, Ham? They all came last night, shortly after she did. And who of them got here last? 
Well, as far as I know, they all came about the same time after dinner. Well, that's no help. Except for Paul, of course. Paul Holder. Yeah, he's the nice kid that works on our ranch, comes down here to run the boat for her. Yeah, so I understand. I didn't see him arrive, so uh, must have been well after midnight. I see. Okay, Ham, I'll need a boat. Well, I got one tied up to the dock with a 40-horse motor on it you can use. Also a flock of fishing tackle. Have my outfit. Welcome to it. And I need a nice string of fish. Oh? Yes. Well, that's easy. Is it? Your pal Buster Favor has a, has a bunch of lunkers in the live box tied up under the dock. Then let's go. Lisa to meet Lisa and her so-called fishing pals was a cinch. And the outboard that Ham had provided, plus tackle and a stringer full of nice big largemouth bass, I simply headed up the lake until I saw the cruiser anchored in Telegraph Cove. And then, making my outboard miss a few times by cutting the switch, I hove to alongside. What's the matter, mister? Having trouble? Well, it sounds like I've run out of gas. It sure does. Paul, huh? Oh, hello there. Hi. Yeah, looks like he's run out of gas, Lisa. Well, may I come aboard and borrow some from you? Well, yes, you certainly can. And you can stay as long as you like. Well, thanks. What did you do that for, Lisa? Don't you see, Paul? Just look at that string of fish. Oh, you're right. If you can show us how to get fish like that, you can stay with us just as long as you like. Well, sure. Why not? Good. Just tie up the stern and pile aboard, and I want you to meet all my friends, okay? Fine. I'd like nothing better. spent the rest of the day there aboard Lisa's cruiser, telling Paul Holder where to anchor over some of my pet fishing spots. Luckily, they all paid off, and Lisa, even prettier and more charming than I thought, insisted that I stick around as long as they stayed on the lake. Good. This gave me the chance I wanted to see and talk to every one of her party, if possible to pick out the person aboard who was there to kill her. And what a motley crew. Suppose I give you a rundown on them. First, there was Paul Holder, the ranch hand skipper, a small, thin fellow in his early 20s with a freckled face and a friendly smile. Almost too friendly? No, maybe I was misjudging him. Maybe. There was Jim Faree, the gambler, tall, dark, suave, and good-looking. And I had no doubt that he'd do exactly what he said he'd do. <laughs> sure, Johnny. I'd kill my own mother for a prize. You think I'm kidding? <laughs> As for Sadie Reese, well, what a cheap dame like this was doing aboard a yacht. Well, I said, sure, Lisa. As long as my good-looking friend Jim here is along. Bait up my hook for me, will you, Jimmy? Old Clara Hinckley, the retired school teacher who fished alone because nobody could stand her shrill and dull and constant yakety yak. I'll never forget the time we had the second grade picnic. It was May. Or maybe it was June, I guess. Anyway, it rained. And on and on and on about the dear, darling second graders to whom she taught reading, writing, and arithmetic. And finally, Charles Schroeder who didn't fish, but spent most of his time with Lisa, talking earnestly with her, occasionally reading a passage from the Book of Mormon that he carried with him. 
I set down my rod and joined them. Read it, study it, believe in it, my dear. And I'm certain, as certain as I am of the great hereafter. Johnny, no more fishing for you? Uh, I'm afraid I just about had my limit when I came aboard. Oh. As I started to say, Uh, No more now, Charles, please. As you wish, my dear. Molly, I'm glad we found you stuck in that cove, Johnny. Well, so am I, Lisa. You've brought us wonderful fishing luck. Look at all that I've caught. You're an excellent guide, my boy. Thanks, Charles. Anybody like a cigarette? Uh, Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And uh, here. Listen. Mm-hmm. Charles. Thanks. But now, if you two will excuse me. Sure. Johnny, there's another reason why I'm glad you came aboard. Oh? It's... Well, it's the reason I put you in the cabin next to mine. Well, uh, now, Lisa... Because... Well, because I've had the most uneasy feeling all day. Have you? I don't really know how to describe it, but... Well... Yeah? Johnny, I'm afraid. But I don't know what of. Kind of look after me. Sure. Good. Now, I'm going down to the galley and cook us all the biggest fish dinner you ever saw. All right? Alisa... Yes? Johnny? Nothing. Go ahead, I'm starved. By the time dinner was over, it was late. We were tired, so we all went to our respective cabins and hit the sack. Except for me. After waiting a while for things to quiet down, I tapped on Lisa's door. And without really telling her why, I made her switch cabins with me. In her bunk, then, I put a dummy. I then quietly took a blanket up on deck, laid it out by the anchor hatch up forward and waited. But I had overestimated my ability to stay awake, and I slept like a log. But not for long. And by rolling over, I caught the darn blanket on a cleat. By the time I could tear it loose and then get on down below, they were all gathered in front of Lisa's cabin. Well, that's a dummy in your bunk. That's right. Lisa, my dear. Thank heaven you're all right. Yes, Charles. But who did this? Who did it? That's a good question, Paul. I tell you this, we'll never get him. Him? What? He stole your boat, Johnny. Took off in that boat of yours. Well, how could he, Jim? It was out of gas. Only it wasn't, Paul. What do you mean? I only used that as an excuse to get on board. What? I don't understand. Paul, make us a pot of coffee. And we'll all sit down and talk this over. In other words, my real reason for coming on board this boat was to protect Lisa from what almost happened. I see. A private eye. An insurance investigator, Jim, looking out for a client. More coffee, Sadie? Sure, baby. I mean, Johnny. Yeah, I can use some more of that, too. Paul, maybe you better make some more. It's already on, Lisa. Charles? Uh, thank you, yes. All right. Now, this murder was attempted by one of us here in this cabin. Why, what? By the one complete phony among us. But your boat was stalled. No, no, Jim. It was cut loose by somebody in this cabin to throw the rest of us off the track. Maybe. Did you hear the motor on it? Well, no. All right, then. Now, Jim, it's obvious, I think, that you're what you say you are, a gambler with a fast eye for a buck. 
And you probably have a record, don't you? So what? I had this murder been gotten away with, you'd be the number one suspect, wouldn't you? And now you look and here. Lady? Well, there's nothing phony about you. Now, what do you mean by that, Johnny? Well, let's not go into that. Uh, Miss Hinckley? Well, certainly we can eliminate you. Really, Mr. Dollar? As for you, Paul... Now, you look here, Johnny. Just keep your shirt on. Yeah, but if you're trying to say... All I said was there's a phony among us. And there he is. What do you mean? Are you looking at me, young man? Johnny. Why not, Charles? After all, you're it. You don't know what you're talking about. Shall I prove it? You have proof? All I need. I see. Stand back there, all of you. That is that the gun you used on that dummy thinking it was Lisa? Yes. Yes, and it's reloaded. There's a bullet for every one of you. I see. More coffee, Charles? What did I do, mister? Oh, sorry, I broke that picture on Nice That's work, Paul. Johnny, how did you know? An elder of the Mormon church, huh? And he accepted and smoked a cigarette out there on the deck this afternoon? Why, yes, he did. But Mormons don't smoke. That's right. And they don't drink coffee. They don't take a stimulant of any kind. So now, if we can get him to talk, rather than have us toss him overboard, shall we bring him to and try it? He talked all right. Plenty. And of course, he implicated Lisa's foster brother, Tony. So now it's all up to the courts. Expense account total, including a couple of days of good fishing with Ham Pratt's and then the trip home, $245.50. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, well, believe it or not, I go to jail. Fact. And I don't mean just to pay someone a little call. No, I get thrown into the clink, and for what, I have to admit, is plenty good reason. And then, believe this or not, I engineer a highly unsuccessful jailbreak. Which means, in the end, that luck was with me. Because if the break had succeeded, I wouldn't be around to tell you about it. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Starring Bob Reddick is written by Jack Johnstone. Produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr. Musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Heard in our cast were Mandel Kramer as Ted, Terry Keene as Lisa, Jim Bowles as Ham, Danny Ako as Charles, Bill Mason as Paul, Joan Loring as Sadie, and Robert Dryden as Jim. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
This is Art Hanna speaking. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and an episode called The Very Fishy Matter from five days before the inauguration of President John Kennedy in 1961. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The heyday of old-time radio coincided with the swing era in music, so we perforce express our appreciation for jazz throughout the year. But April is Jazz Appreciation Month, and, as it began a few weeks ago, we learned of the death of a friend and colleague who was himself a part of jazz history, Jack Bradley. His obituary in the New York Times, to which you'll find a link on our Facebook page, emphasized the importance of the thousands of photographs he took of his friend and mentor, Louis Armstrong. But there was so much more to Jack Bradley and his jazz soul. Almost single-handedly, he founded and maintained the New York Jazz Museum, a short-lived but very important center in midtown Manhattan in the 1970s. I have to speak personally here for a minute, because in 1973, as a 23-year-old kid, I approached Jack with an idea for a tribute concert to Fats Waller. Jack didn't know me from Adam, but he immediately said yes, and we did the concert at the Jazz Museum, and it was an important step on the road to the Broadway show that opened five years later, Ain't Misbehavin'. So, as a tribute to Jack Bradley and to Jazz Appreciation Month, here are Jack's great friend, Louis Armstrong, and the All-Stars, trombonist Jack Teagarden, trumpeter Bobby Hackett, clarinetist Peanuts Hucko, drummer Big Sid Catlett, pianist Dick Carey, and bassist Bob Haggart, with Mr. Armstrong singing and taking a characteristically brilliant solo on a tune he helped to introduce in the 1929 Broadway musical Hot Chocolates, from the famous May 17, 1947 concert in Town Hall in New York City, here are Louis Armstrong and the All-Stars with Fats Waller and Andy Rizoff's Ain't Misbehavin'.
Louis Armstrong and the All-Stars ain't misbehavin' from the spring of 1947, helping us mark Jazz Appreciation Month and the passing of jazz historian and curator Jack Bradley, who passed away last month at the age of 87. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, according to the best scholarship, it'll be exactly 90 years tomorrow since two young part-time Arkansas comedians, Chester Locke and Norris Goff, were asked to perform on a flood relief benefit on station KTHS in Hot Springs. Black Voice, white actors parodying African Americans, was all the rage in radio at the time, led by Freeman Gosden and Charles Carell's smash hit show, Amos and Andy. Everybody was imitating them, so Mr. Locke and Mr. Goff decided to abandon their burnt cork act and portray a couple of white rural Arkansans instead. The result was a smash hit of its own, Lum and Abner. Within months, they were carried on NBC, and they stayed on the air on a variety of networks for nearly 25 years. Reform of the post office has been a big subject in the news in 2021, but the new proposals are to patch on what Lum Edwards had in mind for the Pine Ridge post office on October 24, 1948. It was a time when it cost only three cents to mail a first-class letter, when you had to specify airmail and special delivery, and when this episode aired over CBS on Lum and Abner. I believe that's our ring, Abner. Ah. Bridget Air presents the new Lum and Abner show. Air, a division of General Motors, brings you a brand new kind of visit for those old characters down in Pine Ridge. Featuring Clarence Hartzell as Ben Withers, Gloria Blondell, the music of Felix Mills, and starring your old favorites, Lum and Abner. look in on the little community of Pine Ridge, we find Lum in the Jotham Down store blocking Abner's path to the door. Listen. Now, wait a minute, Abner. Where do you think you're going? Lum, I've got to mail this letter for Ed Stoddard. Now, just why would Ed Stoddard want you to mail a letter for him? He's the postmaster. Well, not for a while he ain't. See, this letter is to the post office department telling them to send out a, a substitute for to take his place. Why? What, what's wrong with Ed? Well... <laughs> You know how absent-minded he's been getting here late. Oh, I know it, I know it. Just the other day, I seen him sauntering along in the rain, holding his hand out in front of him like he's carrying an umbrella. He told me later he didn't realize he'd forgot it till the rain stopped and he reached up to close it. (laughs) Well, you just wait till you hear this. He drove home last night, drove in the driveway, got out, opened the garage door... And when he seen the garage was empty, he yelled, Help! Somebody stole my car. 
Oh, he never. He did. Yeah, he done it. And then his woman, she heard the commotion, thought he was a thief, and throwed an iron skillet and hit him on the head. That woke up the neighbor's dog, and he started chasing him. Then Caleb Weehunt thought it was somebody after his chickens, so he taken a shotgun to Ed, and now Ed is flat in bed on his stomach. Goodness alive. I don't know whether he got the car back or not. Granny, does it sound like you'll be laid up for a while? Well, that's why he writ this letter, to get a substitute. Yeah, you better get that in the mail quick. Or wait a minute. Wait here. Hold on. Give me that letter. You gonna mail it? I'm gonna tear it up. Hey, now, Lon, don't do that. That's government matter. Yeah, and I'm doing the government a favor. Ain't no use in spending all that money to send a substitute out to Pine Ridge when we got a man right here that can handle a job. Yeah, but he's full of buckshot. I don't mean Ed. I mean me. You? Yes, sir. With my set of brains, I'll run that post office like it ain't never been run before. Dear Ella, hope this finds you well. Abner, cut out reading them postcards. You ain't the postmaster. I am. Ruby is having trouble with George again. Abner, I'm going to have to throw you right out of the post office. Because George keeps falling off of the wagon. Abner. Okay, I hope he didn't hurt himself. <laughs> Abner, you... I don't know George, but he must not be very smart one. Keeps falling off. Okay, you'd think he'd learn how to sit in a wagon and hang on after two or <laughs> Abner, that mail is U.S. government property. Tampering with it is a federal offense. And on top of that, if Ella Simpson ever caught you reading her postcard, she'd massacre you. Ruby says next time she sees George, she is going to shoot... Abner, give me that card. Long, this is serious. Ruby's going to shoot... I don't care what she's going to do. Here comes Ella Simpson, and she'll do worse than that, too. Oh, my goodness. Now... Well, morning, Miss Simpson. Why, Lum, are you running the post office now? Yeah, I'm the new letterhead. <laughs> How about some nice fresh stamps today? No, thank you. Say, you got any mail for me? Why, yeah, I believe there is a postcard. <laughs> Just happen to have it in my hand. Here you are. Who's it from? Well, I ain't got the least ideas. I ain't neither. But you better get in touch with Ruby right away. <laughs> hey, shut that. That George is going to get it. What'd you say, Abner? He said that's a gorgeous bonnet. Where'd you get it? Oh. Uh, well, I got it over to the county seat. I only paid a dollar ninety-eight cents for it. It sure don't look like it. <laughs> but everything costs twice what it ought to nowadays, ain't it? Well, good luck to you on your new job here, Lum. Thank you, Sister Simpson. Come in again. Lom, how could you stand there talking about hats when there's a murder going on? Listen, Abner, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for reading somebody else's mail. That's the lowest, sneakiness one thing a human can do. But, Lom, Ruby's going to shoot George. No, she ain't. All it said was the next time Ruby sees George, she's going to shoot him a game of snooker. (laughs) That's a game I ain't even played. Only trouble now, she's liable to club him with a pool cue, you know that? No, because when she went on to say, uh, well, I don't know what it said. Why don't you get on back to the jot down store? Well, all right, but what I come down here to tell you was that you better give up this post office junk, Lum. Squire Skimp says you're going to get yourself in trouble. Oh, sassy grass. Squire's just jealous. Well, he says that you don't know nothing about the post office regulations. Oh, don't I? Well, just stick around and watch how I handle the next customer. 
I'll show you who knows about postal regulations. Well, I know because you got a good one to work on. <laughs> uh -huh. There comes Ben Withers. Uh oh. Oh, hello, Lum. How's the new postmaster? Oh, getting along just fine, Ben. I wonder if you could send a registered letter for me, Lum. Oh, you bet your life I. Registered. Yes. You can handle that, can't you? Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> can I handle it? <laughs> uh, registered. Hmm. You wouldn't want to just send that special deliver, would you? Well, yes, all right. Well, good. But I want it registered, too. Uh, <laughs> all right, Abner, you keep out of this. I never said a word. <laughs> Uh, watch what you're thinking, then. Uh, Let's see, now, you want this letter registered, huh? Yes, registered. Uh-huh. Registered. That's correct. Registered. Uh-huh. Uh, how about sending air mail? I want it registered, love. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, you better. Uh-huh. What's the matter, Mr. Postmaster? Having trouble? Ha, ha, ha! Lum, I want that sent delivered to addressee only. I thought you wanted registered. Fine. Huh? You've got a rubber stamp there that says delivered to addressee only on it. Just stamp that on the envelope. Oh, well, that's simple enough, sure. Uh, here we are. Now, come in again soon, Ben. Well, wait, that's the wrong stamp. That says return insufficient address. <laughs> Admiral, will you get out of here? Well, maybe you better let me get back there and fix this letter up right. No, now, you stay right where you're at, Ben. I'm the postmaster here. Yeah, he's the postmaster. Let's <laughs> see. <you. laughs> Let's see now. Well, what you're supposed to do next is take the postmark stamp and cancel it. Cancel it? You mean you don't want to send it after all? Certainly I want to send it, and I've got to register it because I'm enclosing quite a sizable amount of cash. One dollar and twenty-nine cents. Is that all? Fine. I'm sending for a can of Captain Sprug's Quick Cock. What in the world is that? Yes. <laughs> Captain Sprug of Mount Idy, inventor of the flat-bottom canoe, has done it again. Uh-oh. He has invented a caulking material for mending boat leaks, which can be applied underwater. <laughs> Well, they put it on with a fountain pen. <laughs> Laugh if you want to, but I was present when the captain personally tested Sprug's quick caulk in the waters of beautiful Lake Silt. Well, don't tell us about it. Yes, I will. <clears throat> a large crowd was on hand as Captain Sprug launched his flat-bottom canoe with nothing aboard but a hatchet and a can of Sprug's quick caulk. Huh. Oh, yes, and a putty knife. Well, that was very interesting, Ben. Well, see you later. Fifty feet from the shore, the captain lays the hatchet in full view of the spectators and chopped a hole in the bottom of the canoe. Oh, my sakes. <laughs> As the crowd gasped, the captain calmly laid down the hatchet, picked up the can of Sprug's quick cock, bowed to the audience, and stepped over the side to repair the damage. I'll be dead blame. Forty-five minutes later, all the water had been pumped out of Captain Sprue. <laughs> and plans were underway to dredge for the canoe. Dredge for it? Fine. They never did find the putty knife. 
Well, now, about this registered letter. Or wait a minute. The captain's moved. How do you know? Well, just look what's stamped on the envelope. Returned in sufficient address. Well, Granny's, you're right. It's a lucky thing I found this out before I sent the letter. So long. <laughs> Well, Mr. Postmaster, you sure handled that something wonderful. Well, leastways, I never lost no money on a transaction. Well, why don't you give up this idea right here and now? You've been Postmaster for a whole half a day, and you ain't sold a nickel's worth of stamps or nothing else. I know it, and I don't understand it. A body would think I didn't know a thing about business. Yes, it is easy to get that impression. <laughs> well, I don't think it's me. I think it's the system. Uh, this place is in a rut. For instance, take them three-cent stamps there. Yeah. They've been selling them for the same price for years and years. Well, you're right there, yeah. Why don't they ever have a sale on them? Why don't they ever get two money orders for the price of one? What's the matter with this outfit anyway? <laughs> just old-timey, I reckon. Well, I, I've just got the greatest one idea I ever had in my life. Beginning tomorrow, I'm going to put on the first and the biggest post office sale this country's ever saw. Can you do that? I'm doing it. I, Grannies, I'll make them post office fellers in Washington sit up and take notice. <laughs> Their eyes will bug out like a trumped-on toad frog. <laughs> No, Miss Bates, there's nobody in the store but me and Mr. Niles, the Frigidaire representative. Uh-huh. How's Wilbur? Oh, finally got it, huh? How long a sentence? What do you know, Mr. Niles? Mr. Bates's boy, Wilbur, finally got the prize in his English class for composing the longest sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Good for Wilbur. How's that, Miss Bates? Your cake's what? Oh, that's a shame. Well, why do you suppose they keep falling? Keep falling? Well, here, I can help her with that problem. Uh-huh. Not even enough? Uh, well, uh, tell her to look at one of the new frigid air electric ranges. Hey, uh, better let me talk to her. But you don't understand, Mr. Niles. She... Oh, hello, Mrs. Bates. What? You have? Oh, well, all right, then. Uh, goodbye, Mrs. Bates. What's the matter with you, Ben? Mrs. Bates already has a frigid air electric range. Yes, and she's crazy about it. The only reason her cakes keep falling is Mr. Bates built a shelf for her to put her cakes on, and Mr. Bates is a very poor carpenter. Granny's Avenue, in another half hour, we'll be ready to start the big postal sale. Now, let's check over our list and see what we've did so far. Uh, get signs printed. Check. Make window display out of money order blanks. Check. Buy punch boards. Check. Wait, I forgot to give you any money. What'd you buy the punch boards with? Check. 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 Uh, get jar of beans for guessing contest. Well, Cedric was supposed to bring them over last night, but he ain't showed up yet. That boy, he can't recollect nothing. He ain't got a brain in his head. Check. I 
I guess you better go out and start hunting for him. Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. There he comes right now, Lom. Swan, that boy's the slowest mortal that ever drawed breath. Oh, hearty. Well, I got the beans. <laughs> well, it's about time, Cedric. What taking you so long? You got the beans yesterday. Yes, Mom, but it take me all night long to cook them. <laughs> for the land's sake, Cedric, we never wanted them cooked. Of course not. You can't count cooked beans. Now, get over to the Jot-Em-Down store and get a jar of uncooked ones. And hurry up. Oh, uh, what, what kind do you want? N- navy beans? Yeah, they're fine. Kidney beans are nice. All right. Get kidneys. I thought you wanted beans. Ah. <laughs> uh. Hi, grannies. I wish you two idiots would clear out of here before I go stark raving mad crazy. Both of you go get the beans, but hurry back, Abner, because I'm going to need your help quick as the rest starts. Yeah, all right, all right. I'll call Mamie, the central girl, and have her ring the fire alarm so as I can make a public announcement about the sale over the party line. Yeah, all right. Well, come on, Cedric. Just get out of here. Hello. Oh, hello, Mamie. This is Lum Edwards, and I want you to ring... What's the name? Lum Edwards, and I want... Lum Edwards? Yeah, that's right. He ain't at the jot-em-down store. Try calling him at the post office. Well, I, I don't want to call him. Who? Lum Edwards. I'm sure you'll find him at the post office. I know I will, because that's where I'm at now. Well, ain't he there? Who? Lom Edwards. Oh, for pity's sakes. Why don't you leave a message for him when he comes in? Look, Mamie, I just want you to ring the fire alarm so that what, I... What's that name again? Whose name? Who are you calling? I said ring the fire alarm. Sounds like you're saying fire alarm. Well, I am. How do you spell that? F I R. Look, Mamie, I don't think you understood me. Who are you? Lum Edwards. I told you you can reach him at the post office. Goodbye. Oh, Mamie. Say, Lum, you were wrong. The captain hasn't moved, so I want to send this registered letter after all. Well, that's just dandy great. Now, you get back there and register it yourself. I'm leaving. I'll be back later. Where are you going, Lum? Fine. What? <laughs> what kind of an answer was that? Pine Ridge Post Office. Is Lum Adderts there? No, he just stepped out for a minute. Well, when he comes in, tell him some knucklehead wants him. What's his name? Who? Fine. I'll tell him to call right away. Uh, sir, what can I do for you, sir? Well, I'm Inspector Burton of the Postal Department, and I want to see the postmaster. Oh, yes, you must be the knucklehead the operator mentioned. <laughs> I beg your pardon? Yes. Well, Mr. Edwards is out right now, but he ought to be back shortly. Is he the postmaster here? Well, not really. The real one is home in bed, so Mr. Edwards appointed himself postmaster. Appointed himself? Wait a minute. Did you say you were with the U.S. Postal Department? I certainly did. Well, my stars. Then you must know Hilmer Grossman. <laughs> Who? Yeah. Elmer was in the post office game for a number of years. Best postmaster Mount Idy ever had, until they fired him for being conscientious. Well, I've never heard of a man being fired for that. Well, that's what happened to Elmer. His wife even divorced him on account of it. 
Oh, come now. Elmer Grosson loved the post office work so much that he delivered every letter that came in personally. When Kenneth Zekafus moved to Hatfield, Elmer stamped please forward on the letter and personally delivered it to Kenneth at Hatfield. Well, I don't think they'd discharge him for that. Then a letter came in for Rudford Kelp, who had also moved. Elmer did the same for him. Well, where'd Rudford move to? Somewhere in northern Finland. <laughs> Finland? On his return a year later, Mrs. Grosson based her suit on desertion. Helmer put up the defense that he was so far north, the days were six months long, thus he was only gone two days. <laughs> he lost the case. Yes. Well, tell me more about this Mr. Edwards. Ex-postmaster Grosson now runs a small Finnish steam bath in Mount Aiden. I don't care about him. What about this Mr. Edwards? Oh, he's not here right now. He's out making final arrangements for his stamp sale. Stamp sale? Fine. Well, look. I'm going to drop in a little later and have a chat with this Mr. Edwards. But don't you tell him. Oh, <laughs> What a surprise, I certainly am, and what a surprise. Well, I grant his Abner, the sale's on. Let him come in. Yeah, well, wait a minute, Lom. There's one more sign we ain't put up yet. Which one's that? This one that says, Fall clearance sale. All posted stamps drastically reduced to half price. Oh, yeah. Yeah, stand that and right up over the ink well there. Yeah, yeah. And that reminds me, did you bend up the pinpoints? Yeah. <laughs> me and Cedric played a game of darts with them. We got them bent up to where you couldn't tell them from the pins they got in the biggest post offices in the country. Good. I just don't understand why the old postmaster never thought of any of these ideas. no. He never even advertised. No, no. <laughs> hey, Long, get ready, get ready. Yonder comes our first customer. Well, good. Make him think we're doing a big business. That'll help the sale. Yeah, yeah. Who is that fellow? I don't know. Looks like some out-of-town stranger. Yeah. He ain't a local stranger. <laughs> well, whoever he is, I bound you he ain't never seen a post office run like I'm running this. <laughs> well, come in, mister. Come right in. My name's Burton. But you're just in time for the big sale, Mr. Burton. Yeah, see that sign over there? Three centers, two cents, two centers, one cent. <laughs> yes. Uh, just how many stamps have you sold at this rate? Well... Oh, uh... hundreds of them. Just hundreds. Hmm, that's interesting. Tell me more about this sale. Sounds even better than I imagined. Oh, you heard about it, huh? And you're from out of town, ain't you? Yes, I'm from Washington. Washington? Well, what do you know about that? I'll show you what advertising will do, Abner. <laughs> what I want to know is which one of you is responsible for all this. Well, <laughs> I don't like to brag on myself, but I'm your man. You may be right. I helped. <laughs> Good. I want that information, too. Well, thank you. Now, uh... Let's see now. You're Mr. Edwards, aren't you? Yeah, that's I. Mr. Edwards, do you know anything at all about postal regulations? <laughs> oh, them old moldy wore-out things. I'm making up a whole new set. <laughs> you are, eh? Oh, yeah. You might say I'm revoluting the whole postal system. <laughs> 
He's the most revolting postmaster this town's ever seen. <laughs> Abner, you're just saying that. No! Mom, everybody says that. <laughs> oh, yeah, they love me here in Pine Ridge. Mr. Edwards, have you informed Washington of any of those little changes you're making? Well, not quite yet. I'm going to surprise it on them all at once. I'm going to make monkeys out of them old fogies. <laughs> old fogies, eh? Oh, yeah. Would you like to take a chance on the punch board? Punch board? Yeah, see, if you get the lucky number, you get a free money order. <laughs> this is incredible. Oh, you ain't saw nothing yet. See that jar of beans there? Guess how many beans there are in it, Mr. Burton. Yeah, try 3,479. Blabbermouth. Say, <laughs> so what is this, some kind of a game? Yeah, see, whoever guesses closest to the number of beans in there gets a postal savings account with double the regular interest for two years. <laughs> double the interest? You can't possibly mean that. Oh, you don't know me, Mr. Burton. <laughs> when the giver man finds out what I'm doing here, they'll have me working for him for the rest of my life. <laughs> Mr. Edwards, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Well, don't jump all over me, Lom. I never knowed Mr. Burton was a post office inspector. That's what I get for hiring unexperienced help. <laughs> well, I don't know what you're kicking about. He dropped the charges again. All he done was just forbid you to ever set your foot inside that post office again as long as you live. Hand pounded his fist. That's all he does. I don't care so much about that. It's just downright humiliating to have him hold that election to find the most reliable man in Pine Ridge to take my place. Well, I can tell you right now, I don't care who they elect. You don't, huh? What are you standing here outside the post office window waiting for him to count the votes for them? Wait a minute. They'll, they'll hear it. Oh. Yeah, I think Ben Withers is getting ready to read the results. Listen. Well, Mr. Burton, here's how the voting tallies up. All right. Ezra C. Strunk. Oh, that varmint. Gets two votes. Huh? Walt Bates. <laughs> Him. Gets seven votes. Good for Walt. Yes. <laughs> and here's your most reliable man, Mr. Burton, with 309 votes. All right. Fine. It's. Well. Who is it? This will set the post office by 20 years. It's Lum Edwards. <laughs> and Abner will be back in just a moment. But first, here's an important question. Would you like to own a refrigerator that has a different kind of cold for every different kind of food? Then visit your Frigidaire dealer and ask to see his many models of the Frigidaire refrigerator. The only refrigerator in the world with the famous meter miser. Simplest cold-making mechanism ever built. Here, Lom, uh, now that you're the official postmaster, why, you get to read all the postcards. So, uh, what does this in here say? Oh, it's from one of the Abernathy boys to his mama. Well, 
All three of them boys are with the government, you know. One of them's in the Army and one's in the Navy and the other's in Alcatraz. <laughs> yeah, th this is from Sood. He's the one at Alcatraz. Well. Hmm. Says he ain't at all satisfied. <laughs> Abner Show is brought to you each week by Frigidaire Division of General Motors. Manufacturers of a complete line of home appliances, air conditioners, and refrigeration equipment for American business. The script is written by Roz Rogers and Betty Boyle. The music by Felix Mills. So until next Sunday night, same time, same station, this is Wendell Niles saying good night for Frigidaire, America's number one refrigerator. CBS, where 99 million people gather every week. The Columbia Broadcasting System. Lum and Abner, from a week before Halloween in 1948. That landmark comedy series began its nearly two and a half decade run on radio 90 years ago tomorrow. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. Ultimately, when a person's accused of a crime and denies it, it's up to a jury to determine who's telling the truth. Sometimes, though, a law enforcement officer has to decide whom to believe. That's the problem confronting Matt Dillon in a case called The Patsy. It comes from October 30th, 1954, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, 
that makes a man watchful and a little lonely. cares, Holly? If they did, you'd fight for me, wouldn't you? Sure. Around here in the alley. Nobody will see us. Sure. Dave. Holly. You're awful pretty. Am I, Dave? Somebody laying over there, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, come on, Chester. That's Dave Thorpe, Chester. Want me to have a look around, Mr. Dillon? Uh, whoever did it ran down the alley into the street. He's just one of the crowd out there by now. Is Dave dead? No, he's breathing. I saw Doc in the saloon there. What's he doing? He's coming. Well, go keep that crowd back, huh? Yes, sir. Dave. All right. Hey, let me through. Dave. Let me through here, please. Yeah. Hey, Dave, can you talk? Uh, let's see. Dave Thorpe, huh? Somebody shot him, Matt. Yeah. Uh, let me see. Let me see here. Oh, yes, he got shot all right. Who did it, Matt? Well, if you can bring him to, maybe we'll find out. No, no, not this man. He's bleeding to death, Matt. There's nothing I can do to stop it. Can you tell how it happened, Doc? I mean, where the bullet went in? Oh, you don't need a doctor for that, Matt. His gun's still in his holster. Uh, maybe somebody outdrew him. Oh, I didn't think about that. Uh, let me see. Uh, well, it couldn't have been much of a fight, Matt. He was shot in the back. And the bullet came out right here. Uh, oh. bleeding. Can you get him to talk, Doc? Oh, he's too far gone, Matt. Well, there's nothing anybody can do for him now. That makes a man feel pretty helpless. To stand here and watch somebody bleed to death. Yeah. Probably doesn't even know who shot him. Yeah, maybe not. But he'd know who might want to. Every time there's a new moon, somebody gets murdered around here. Oh, here comes his brother. What happened, Marshal? How is he? He's unconscious, Joe. He's dying. You don't know what you can for him, Doc. There isn't anything I can do, Joe. The bullet went, went through his lung. Marshal, I can't understand it. Who'd shoot him down like this? Well, I was hoping you might have an idea, Joe. My brother ain't got an enemy in the whole country. Never heard a man say a word against him. Thorpe? Huh? Your brother's dead. Well, it ain't right, Marshal. It just ain't right. Not Dave. Joe, listen to me. Think hard now, would you? Somebody shot him. Huh? Somebody was his enemy. No, nobody I know. Not unless it was some murdering riffraff just killed him to be killing. You got to find out who did it, Marshal. Well, I'd like to. You Joe. better do it. Nobody's going to murder my brother and get by with it. 
It's a mighty poor thing when a decent man like Dave can get shot down. Nobody does nothing about it. I figure to do everything I can, I don't Joe. care if you got to take Dodge City apart, Marshal. You better find that killer. Cells out back, Mr. Jonah. Sure do wish we could fill one of them. Well, it's not likely, Chester. Not tonight, anyway. I sure didn't care much about the way Joe Thorpe was going on about you not doing nothing. What do you expect of a man? Well, he was upset about his brother, Chester. They've always been pretty close. Well, that's no cause for him talking the way he was. Oh, he'll get over it. Chester, I guess you're right. Joe will have to run their hide-buying business all by himself now, won't he? He'll manage. He can always hire somebody to help him if he needs Yes. Well, it's Miss Kitty. <laughs> Come in, Kitty. Come in. Matt, this is Holly Fanshawe. Ah, how do you do, Holly? Marshal. And Chester Proudfoot. I'm pleased to know you, Miss Holly. Thank you, Chester. Holly's kind of new in Dodge, Matt. Yeah, I've seen her around. She was afraid to come here and talk to you alone, so I came with her. <laughs> There's nothing to be afraid of, Holly. I... Oh, what's the trouble? You tell him, Kitty. I'll tell him part of it, but I want him to hear the rest from you. Well, all right. After the shooting tonight, Holly came to see me, Matt. She was pretty scared, but I told her you wouldn't let anything happen to her. I uh, know, of course not. Well, it seems she was at the bar drinking with Dave Thorpe a little earlier. And he had a kind of argument with a cowpuncher from that XT outfit that came in the other day. The Texan said Dave jogged his elbow or something silly like that. Oh? Well, uh, how mad were they? Mad enough. Oh, what do you mean, Holly? He killed him, Marshal. What? That cowpuncher, he, he killed Dave Thorpe. Well, how do you know? I was there. You were there. Dave and I went outside in the alley just to get a little air, and suddenly this cowboy shot him. He must have been waiting or something. You recognized him? Real plain, Marshal. It was him, all right. Well, how come he let you go? I don't know. He must have got scared or something. But he shot Dave, and then he ran off. I got scared, and I ran, too. She wasn't going to tell you, Matt, till I talked her into it. She's afraid that cowboy or some of his friends will get after her. No, nobody will bother you, Holly. I promise you that. Uh, do you know this man's name? They was calling him Fly Hoyt there at the bar, Marshal. Fly Hoyt? I knew an old lady down on the brazes called something like that, Mr. Dillon. Only her last name was Fly. Her first name yeah, was... Yeah, yeah, all right, all right, Chester. Holly, are you willing to testify to all this in court? In court? Oh, I'd, I'd be awful scared, Marshal. But you'll do it, huh? Kitty says it's my duty. Good. Now, don't you worry about anything. Chester and I'll ride out to the XT camp in the morning and bring this fly hoid in. There won't be any trouble. And, uh, thanks for coming here, Holly. Sure, Marshal. <laughs> 
That's XT Camp up ahead, Mr. Dillon. Uh, you been out here, Chester? That's where I rode by it a couple days ago. They gave me a cup of coffee at the wagon. Oh. Uh, it looks like they're expecting us. Mm. By golly, it sure does. I don't like the way all them men's lined up. Maybe I was wrong last night about there not being any trouble. That's the trail boss, that big fellow there. His name's Jim Cavanaugh. You don't know Fly Hoyt, do you? No, sir, I don't. I didn't meet him. Hey, they don't look very friendly, Mr. Dillon. No, they sure don't. Chester. Huh? Let's leave our horses here and walk up, huh? All right. But... Are uh, you Jim Cavanaugh? Your friend there also tell you I'm boss of this outfit? Yeah, yeah. I got 20 men here, Marshal, not counting me. So you better climb into your saddles and ride right on back to Dodge. You know what I came for? That gal Holly got to talking last night late. A couple of my boys was there when she did. And you ain't taking Fly Hoyt, Marshal. Huh. You and your men are ready to kill me if I try, is that it? Kansas law don't mean nothing to us Texans, Marshal. <laughs> Does Fly Hoyt admit killing that man last night? Fly ain't said nothing about it one way or t'other. And we don't find it polite to inquire into a man's personal business. Do you find murder polite? Marshal, you get sassy, we'll bury you right where you're standing. And then we'll drive a couple thousand longhorn cattle over your grave and nobody will ever find you. Which one of your men is Fly Hoyt? Reckon you don't hear good. I want to talk to him. Which one is he? Don't pay him no mind, Fly. Why, is he too much of a coward to talk? No man calls me a coward. Hey, Fly. I'm Fly Hoyt, Marshal. You darn fool, Hoyt. I ain't afraid. What was it you want to talk about, Marshal? Well, if it's not inquiring too closely into your personal business, I'd like to know if you admit killing Dave Thorpe last night. I didn't kill him. A girl called Holly Fanshawe says you did. She says she saw you. She's lying. She says you had an argument with Thorpe at the bar earlier. That's true. I remember the girl. Well, where were you when the shooting took place, then? No place that'd do me any good. Now, Fly, that ain't so. Thanks, Jim. But I have to do this my own way. The boys here'd lie for me, Marshal. They'd swear to anything I wanted them to. But the truth is, I was alone when I heard that shot. I'd left the saloon and I was up the street there all alone. You admit that? I got no alibi. But you say you didn't kill Dave Thorpe. I never killed a man in my life. I don't believe in it. Does Holly Fanshawe have any reason to lie about you? 
First time I ever saw her was last night, Marshal. But I'm sure curious about her now. Oh? I'm rough in my ways sometimes, Marshal. But I ain't no killer. And I ain't no liar. How are you going to prove it? Well, Marshal, I'd ride in to Dodge with you. What for? I'd like to have me a talk with this Harley Fanshaw. Then maybe I can prove it. Uh, she was worried you and some of your friends might come after her. I'd sooner blind a horse than lay a hand on a woman, Marshal. And that's the truth. Okay, Fly, let's get going. Where'd Harley be this time of day, Marshal? Uh, she's probably still in her room, Fly. I don't know where that is. Oh, she's in the same room and house as Miss Kitty. She told me so. Oh, good. I'll show you where it is, Fly. I want to talk to Kitty anyway. Hey, Mr. Dillon, look. Here comes Joe Thorpe. Joe Thorpe? Yeah. It's Dave's brother. Oh. Good morning, Marshal. Morning, Joe. Didn't take you very long after all, Marshal. Heard the whole story. Ah, Holly Fanshawe's quite a talker. Yeah. Well, it's Fly Hoyt, ain't it? Yeah, I remember seeing you, Hoyt. Do you? I was down the bar ways from you and Dave. He was a good man, Hoyt. I'm looking forward to your hanging. I'm still wearing a gun, mister. Marshal, how come you didn't disarm him? I have him arrested him, Joe. What? He says he didn't do it. Who cares what he says? The girl saw him. Yeah, I know. Fly's here now to talk to her about that. What do you mean? He wants to know why she said it was him. Well, of course it was him. She saw him. Girl's got no reason to lie about it. Marshal, she witnessed the killing. She's identified the killer. That's good enough for me. Well, that's not for me. Okay, Marshal. Okay, then. You won't enforce the law here. I'll do it. What do you mean by that? My brother had plenty of friends here in Dodge. I'll get them all together. We'll come after him. We'll take on his whole outfit if we have to. You try that and I'll throw you in jail. I mean, when I say you arrest this man, Marshal, there's going to be trouble. I'm not arresting him and I'm ready for your trouble. Well, you're going to get it, all right. That's a mighty hot-headed man, Marshal. Yeah. And he means it about making trouble, too. Uh, Chester, mm-hmm. wait for us at the office, will you? Yes, Mr. Dillon. It's down the street a ways here, Fly. Let's go.
That's smart, Kitty. Well, this is a surprise. Come on in, Matt. Oh, thank you. I, uh, I'm sorry to come in on you this way, Kitty, but, uh, well, I kind of wanted to talk to you. Sure, Matt. What about? Fly Hoyt just went down the hall to Holly's room. He did? No, it's okay. The landlady told him which one it was. Well, I'm not worried about the landlady. No, Fly's all right, Kitty. He says he didn't do it, and well, I, I can't tell you why, but I believe him. But Holly saw him, Kitty, Matt. tell me about Holly, will you? Do you know her very well? No, not very. She keeps pretty much to herself. Does she have any friends, any particular friends, any uh, men? Nobody she ever mentioned, Matt. <sighs> what was she doing with Dave Thorpe, I wonder? You do? No, you know what I... Matt! Yeah. You'll stay here, Kitty. No, I'm coming with you. That's your room, Matt. Here. Hey, you stay in the hall. Uh, All right, I'll take that gun, Fly. Is she dead, Matt? Don't look at her, Kitty. Oh, Matt. What's the matter with you, Fly? Nobody shot you. I got hit, Marshal. As soon as I opened the door, somebody hit me. Knocked me out for a minute. Lion won't help you this time, mister. I ain't lying. I come to and I seen her laying there. And then you come in. Who hit you? Holly? No. No, Marshal. Somebody was hiding behind the door. I heard him move, but I never even seen him. There's no closet in this room. Where's he hiding now? On the wall? Oh, the window's open. Maybe somebody was here. Well, he's gone now. My gun, Marshal. Did he use that? That's been fired. He's smart. He killed her with it and then put it back in my holster. Who did? I don't believe a word you're saying. You're Miss Kitty, ain't you? I, I seen you last night. We're not talking about me. I wouldn't shoot a woman, Miss Kitty. I wouldn't shoot a man either unless I had to. Somebody's sure trying his best to get me hung. Well, I don't know. Kitty, keep everybody out of here, will you? Yeah. I'll send Chester and a couple of men for Holly. Fly, you stay with me. You arresting me? Here's your gun, Fly. Thank you, Marshal. This is my office here, Fly. Let's see if Chester's still around. I'll help him if you want, Marshal. Now he can get somebody else. Well, what are you doing here, Joe? Waiting for you. I uh, want to talk to you, Marshal. Okay. Chester, hmm? Holly Fanshawe's been killed over in her room. Killed? How'd she get killed? She was shot. Go get Doc, will you? And somebody to help you? Yes, sir. Wait a minute. What, what happened, Marshal? Somebody slugged Fly when he went into her room. Then he used his gun to shoot her. Who says he did? Fly. You listen to him like he was your father. What was it you wanted to see me about, Thorpe? Well, I was going to tell you I changed my mind about all I was saying out there in the street a while ago. 
But now, no, sir. You know, maybe I ought to lock you up right now. You can't lock me up. I didn't have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with what? Well, I mean, I, I, mean, I ain't done nothing. You can't lock a man up for talking. Ah, that's not what you meant. Would you arrest Fly, Marshal? He's killed two people now. Chester? Yes, sir. How long has Joe been here? Why, he come in just for you, did Mr. What are you Young? talking about? What difference it made? I had a talk with Kitty, Joe. She told me about you and Holly. What? Holly didn't keep secrets very well. She told Kitty how you made her lie about who killed Dave and how you set it up for her to get him into the alley. Me? Fly didn't well, get hit fast enough in Holly's room a while ago, Joe. He saw who did it. No. Tell him who it was, Fly. Now, go on, tell him. What? Why, it was him, Joe Thorpe. Oh, what are you... You might as well admit it. What were you doing, stealing money out of you and your brother's hide business? Well, you... You ain't gonna put me in jail. I don't care if I did kill him. No, you... You okay, Chester? Yes, sir. I held his arm so as he couldn't get his gun up. It went off right in the floor there. Well, you did fine. He might have killed somebody else otherwise. Marshal? What? I don't understand this. I didn't see him in Harley's room. I said I did just because I figured you wanted me to. Well, I did want you to, Fly. Did Harley really tell Kitty about how Joe killed his brother and all? No. Holly didn't talk to anybody about that. That or the fact that she was in thick with Joe. Well, how'd you know then? I didn't. But when he said he didn't have anything to do with it, I got an idea and decided to chance bluffing him. If he hadn't panicked, he probably would have been okay. Hmm. You just made it all up, huh? Yeah. But I made it up right. That's what happened. It's a mighty poor man who shoot his own brother, ain't it? His own brother and a woman. But he pretty near got by with it, Marshal. Yeah, but when he picked you to blame it on, he picked the wrong man, Fly. You know, there are a lot of men I don't suppose I'd have believed. But that was his big mistake. I believed you. Well, I swear. Marshal, wait till I get home and tell him about a Kansas lawman I met. Nobody will ever believe me again. under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Lawrence Dobkin, Jack Crucian, Jill Jarman, and James Nusser. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke.
Gunsmoke every Saturday, this same time, this same station. Hear the great new Perry Como radio show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, also on CBS Radio. This is the CBS Radio Network. Gunsmoke, an episode called The Patsy from the Eve of Halloween in 1954 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or follow us on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And be sure to visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. On Dragnet, Detectives Friday and Smith are always very careful about collecting evidence. But in tonight's episode, it's a piece of missing evidence that helps them crack the case. The story's called The Big Slug, and it comes from February 22nd, 1955, NBC and Dragnet. Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. You've just completed an investigation on an East Los Angeles murder case. You get a hotshot call. A shooting in a liquor store on Pico Boulevard. Your job? Check it out. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, February 16th. It was cool in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of Homicide Division. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lawman. My name's Friday. We are on our way back from the interrogation room, and it was 8.46 p.m. when we got to room 42. Homicide. You think you'll cop, huh? I don't know. Probably won't make much difference anyway. Yeah. Mel keeping the gun, that was his big mistake. Yeah. wonder why she gave him the chance. What do you mean? Well, he'd beaten her a couple of times before, and neighbors all said so. Yeah. You'd think she'd have walked out on him. Maybe that's what she was trying to do. Well, she should have tried sooner. You got any plans for dinner? No, not especially. Why? Well, I guess I'll grab a bite with you. Faye said she's not going to want any dinner. She'll fix something for the kids and told me to eat downtown. Well, that's a switch, isn't it? Sure is. Tell you the truth, Joe, she's kind of sore at me. This is her way of getting even. Is that so? Yeah. Woman expects a man to remember everything. Let him slip up just once, it's the end of the world. Is that right? Birthdays, anniversaries, Mother's Day, Christmas, Lincoln's birth, everything. What'd you forget this time? Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. Well, I knew there was something eating her when I got home that night. She didn't say a word until the next morning. Then she hands me a tie. Stripes like that brown and red one from last Christmas, only this one is maroon and gray. Yeah. Said she didn't want to give it to me on Valentine's Day because she knew how embarrassed I'd be. You know, on account of not having a present for her. 
Well, why don't you get her some flowers or some candy you can make up for it? She told me not to, Joe. Said she didn't want anything unless I thought of it myself and on the right day. See, you don't understand women, Joe. You can't make up for a mistake. They won't let you. Hot shot, I got it. For us? Liquor store out in Pico. Yeah. Dead body. We drove out to the Evandale Liquor Store on West Pico Boulevard. The owner, Cecil Evandale, was lying on the floor behind the counter. He'd been shot through the chest and he was already dead when the body was discovered. A team from robbery detail and Sergeant Jay Allen and a crew from the crime lab arrived a few minutes after we did. They began their investigation and we talked to the patrol car officers who'd found Evandale's body. We were just cruising by and we saw the front door standing wide open. No sign of Evandale, so we thought maybe we ought to look around. Yeah. Came inside, gave the place a once-over, spotted him just like he is now. You're sure he's the man who owned the store, huh? Oh, yeah, it's Evandale, all right. He's had trouble before. How's that? A couple of boys held him up, oh, must be about a month ago now. We answered the call. I see. Yeah, picked up the same night. Evandale had their license number. You had a conviction? First-degree robbery. Well, it can't be them if they're in the joint. I'll check on it, John. All right. It was another hold-up. They didn't get away with much. Oh? Cash register was open when we came in. Still full. Fifty, seventy-five dollars. That's my guess. Well, maybe something scared them off. The street was empty. No cars, nobody. Funny they left all that money just lying there in the drawer. That's not the only funny thing around here. What do you got, Jay? Found the casing. Take a look. Mm-hmm. It's 38, huh? Yeah. Slug went right through him. In his chest, out the back. Right through. Clean as a whistle. Mm-hmm. Sure got me, Buffalo. What do you mean? The slug. Yeah. Can't find a trace of it. Frank came back from the telephone with the information that the two men who had previously robbed the Evandale liquor store were now serving their sentences in San Quentin. While Sergeant Jay Allen and the crew from the crime lab continued to search for the missing slug and any other physical evidence, we canvassed the area for somebody who might have heard the shooting. 9.53 p.m., we found a drugstore in the next block that was still open for business. Fountain's closed, that's what you're after. No, sir, we'd like to talk to you for a minute. Talk? What about? We're police officers. It's Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Police, huh? That's right. Thought I heard sirens a while back. What's been going on around here? Well, there was some trouble at the liquor store down the street. See Sevendale's place? Yeah. You shouldn't have let it happen. Beg your pardon? You're police officers, ain't you? Yes, sir, we are. He was robbed just a few weeks ago. You should have figured somebody had tried again. You should have been watching him, making sure he was all right. Well, it's a pretty big town, sir. There's a lot to watch. Too big, if you ask me. Why don't they go home? What's that? All them folks who keep moving to L.A. 25 years ago, I come here... Things were a lot different then. Man could drive down the streets, find a place to park his car. There was room to move around in. Elbow room. Mm-hmm. More people coming all the time, getting so crowded a man can't breathe. Yes, sir. You see anybody who might have done the shooting? Tonight, you mean? Yes, sir. Anybody suspicious? Nobody suspicious come in here. Not since I got back from supper, leastways. When was that? 7.30. Right around in there. Uh-huh. Don't think I've had more than a half a dozen customers since supper time. Miss Jacobs, her youngsters got the coop, sold her some cough syrup. Ought to relieve it some. Then there was a couple of boys. Bought Cokes, read the magazines. Well, how old were they? Ten, twelve, just shavers. Uh-huh. Fellow come in for a carton of cigarettes. Don't know his name, but he lives around here somewheres. Been in a half dozen times before. Don't recall anybody else. Well, how about out on the street? Hmm? Did anybody walk by or hang around who doesn't belong in the neighborhood? How the heck would I know? You can't even see the street from in here when it gets dark. Yes, sir. Black as pitch out there. 
Been after them for the last five years to put up a street lamp. Been begging them. What do they do? Just raise my taxes and spend the money on freeways and gadgets so as more strangers will come flooding in on us. Oh, darn shooting could have took place right there on my sidewalk. I wouldn't have been able to see it. Yes, sir. Well, thanks anyway. I say, wait a minute. Come to think of it, I did spot a couple of fellas. Acted kind of funny, too, like they didn't want me to see them. You know what I mean? I think so. It was then when I was walking home to supper. No, no, it was when I was on my way back. That'd be about 7.30? Give or take a couple of minutes. Well, they were just standing there in the doorway, kind of. Turned their backs toward me as I walked past them. Could you describe them for us? I said they turned their backs. Yes, sir. Not that it made no never mind. It's so darn dark out there. I couldn't describe them if they'd been coming at me head on. Uh-huh. You got any idea how tall they were? Medium height, I guess. How were they dressed? Didn't notice. Except for one of them. Yes, sir. Jacket he was wearing. Notice that. Remember thinking it was so loud you could see it in the dark. Kind of plaid. You know big crisscrosses? Mm-hmm. What color was it? Must have been light. Some kind of light color. Tan, maybe with green in it. Not sure. Now, is there anything else you can tell us about these two men? I think I've done pretty good to give you that much. Yes, sir, you have. Thank you. I'm not saying they had anything to do with shooting Cease Evansdale. You understand? Yeah, we understand. It's up to you to find out who did it and bring him to justice. Yes, sir. Don't know what's getting into this town. Man ain't safe in his own store. More crime all the time. More criminals. Wasn't like this 25 years ago. Maybe not. Why should there be more now? Well, you gave us the reason. Huh? More people. p.m., we went back to the liquor store. The body had been moved to the county morgue. Jay Allen told us that he and his crew had searched the walls, the floor, the furniture. There was no physical evidence and still no trace of the slug that had killed Cecil Evandale. The next morning, February 17th, we again returned to the neighborhood and questioned shopkeepers in the vicinity. None of them had any leads. 12.05 p.m., we went back to the office. Well, I guess you were right, Joe. What about when I got home last night, she was expecting candy or flowers or something. Why well, she told you not to buy her anything? Yeah, but that didn't keep her from being disappointed when she didn't get anything. Oh, what'd she say? She didn't say. She just looked. I got it. Homicide, buddy. Yes, that's right. No, we're on there. When? I see. My tie-in, yeah. You give me the address? Okay, right. Thank you. Office just got a report from a clinic out on Wilshire. A man came in to see him this morning. Yeah. Had a 38 slug in his chest. We drove out to a small medical center a few blocks west of Vermont Avenue and we went into the offices of Dr. J.Y. Springer. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Afternoon. Dr. Springer in? Do you have an appointment? For police officers. Oh. The doctor busy? Well, he does have a patient with him right now. I see. We'll wait. I'll tell him you're here. I'm sure it won't be long. Thank you. Might as well sit down. Yeah. You think we're on the right track, Joe? I don't know. That slug isn't in the liquor store, that's for sure. Jay says there isn't a mark on the walls. Yeah. Sure had to hit something. Or somebody. Yeah. You want a magazine? No, no thanks. That's funny. What? This is a brand new issue. See right here? February. Mm-hmm. New magazine in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. What's the matter? It's a medical journal. 
The doctor will see you now. Thank you. In here. Thank you. Dr. Springer? That's right. Police officers. This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. How do you do? How do you do, sir? What can I do for you, gentlemen? Well, understand you took a bullet out of a man's chest this morning. Oh, that. Mind telling us about it? No, no, not a bit. The young man came into the office. Must have been around 10 o'clock. Yes, sir. He told me that he and a friend had been looking at some guns last night. One of them went off accidentally. I examined the wound. It was quite superficial. The bullet had barely penetrated the skin. Mm-hmm. I removed it, put on a bandage. That's all there was to it. I see. They're very superficial. Didn't even need instruments. He could have squeezed it out himself if he'd tried. Was he a regular patient of yours, Doctor? No. No, I'd never seen him before. He said he was just passing through L.A. Could you describe him for us? Well, he was in his late teens or early 20s. Dark hair, stocky, weighed about 170, I judge. About how tall? 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, mm-hmm. Any distinguishing marks or scars that you recall? No, nothing like that. How was he dressed? Slacks, sports shirt, loud jacket. Loud? Yes, a plaid of some sort, green and brown. The shirt was open at the collar, no tie. Well, when you called in, you reported that his name was Clyde Beaton? That's right. You think it might be his real name, Doctor? I'm sure of it. Oh? I have to be very careful whenever you treat a bullet wound. I always ask for identification. Yes, sir, that's a good idea. The young fellow was a little embarrassed at first. He didn't have any. No driver's license? It was in his other suit. I told him he'd have to stay here until I could contact the police. What did he do then? He fished through his pockets, found a letter he'd recently received. I took the name from the envelope, Clyde Beaton. Seems sufficient identification under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Did you get Beaton's address? He said he was staying at the Crown Prince Hotel on Sunset. Now, what the letter said? I'm afraid I don't remember. It was the name I was chiefly interested in. I understand. Did you keep the slug, Doctor? Hmm? The bullet you took out of his chest? No, I'm afraid not. He wanted it for a souvenir. Well, your report said it was a 38. That's right, 38 caliber. You sure of that? I've handled guns all my life. It's a hobby. I see. Is this a serious matter, Sergeant? I'm afraid we don't know yet. The wound was very superficial. Yes, sir. I remember telling him how lucky he was that the bullet hadn't gone in deeper. Well, he could have been luckier. How's that? If it hadn't hit him at all. We drove over to the Crown Prince Hotel. They told us that no one by the name of Clyde Beaton had been registered during the past month. They also told us that they had no guests who answered the suspect's description. We checked the name through R&I. They had nothing on him. We also checked the telephone books, city directories... We came up with two Clyde Beatons. The first one was an elderly man who lived on Highland Avenue. We interviewed him and learned that he suffered from arthritis and had been bedridden for the past two years. He had no living relatives except for a daughter who kept house for him. The second Clyde Beaton lived on Washington Boulevard. We drove out to the address. It was a two-story brick and stucco apartment house. Yes? Mr. Beaton in? No, he isn't. You know where we can find him? What for? The police officer. What? This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Are you Mrs. Beaton? Yes. Mrs. Clyde Beaton? That's right. Could you tell us where your husband is, please? Well, he's not here. Yes, ma'am. Where is he? Chicago. Oh. Been there since last Friday. You sure of that? What's this all about? Police business. Do you mind if we come in for a minute? Well, no, I guess not. We can't talk very loud. The baby's asleep. Yes, ma'am. You say your husband's in Chicago? Since last Friday. Business trip? Well, in a way. He's a plastic salesman. Company's having a convention. I see. He did a bigger gross last year than any other West Coast representative, and that's why they picked him to go. Mm-hmm. It's quite an honor. He's only been with him a couple of years, practically the youngest man in the force. Yes, ma'am. He even had a dinner last night. Gave him a plaque. Last night? He called me afterwards. Long distance. From Chicago? Well, don't you believe me? 
Yes, ma'am. Does your husband have a gun, Miss Beaton? What? A pistol or a revolver. Well, I... Well, does he, Miss Beaton? Oh, yes, he has a gun. Do you take it with him? No, of course not. Mm-hmm. Why would he take a gun to Chicago? Would you get it for us, please? Oh, it's in the bedroom. Bureau drawer. The baby's there. We'd like to see it, Miss Beaton. All right. Well, the convention in Chicago should be easy to check. Yeah, too easy. Hmm? Well, if a guy was setting up an alibi, he'd pick something tougher to crack, wouldn't he? You think we've struck out? Could be. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, the gun isn't there. Oh. I looked all through the bureau. I, I don't know what could have happened to it. Well, maybe your husband did take it with him. Well, I packed all his things he couldn't have. I see. Well, we've always kept it in the top drawer where it'd be handy. Mm-hmm. You know where your husband's staying, Miss Beaton? The Waterfield Hotel. I've never been in Chicago, but it's right downtown someplace. What's the name of the company he works for? Federated Plastics. Can't you tell me why you're asking all these questions? we just like to get in touch with him. What about? Do you have a picture we can take with us? Of Clyde? Yes, ma'am. Oh, I suppose so, but I'd like to know why. Is he in any trouble? Not if he's been in Chicago for the last few days. Of course that's where he's been. I talked to him just last night. We have the picture now? Let's see what I can find. I think there are a couple of snapshots in the desk. Would that be all right? Yes, ma'am. Be fine. When's your husband due back? Day after tomorrow. Is he flying? Mm-hmm. I don't know which flight, though. He said he'd send me a telegram. Here's a picture. Took it last summer on our vacation from Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. My brother Tim's in it, too. Will that make any difference? No, it's perfectly all right. That's Clyde sitting on the rock. Mm-hmm. The one in the plaid coat. We took the picture with us, and we stopped by Dr. Springer's clinic. His nurse told us he was operating at St. Thomas Hospital. She said she'd call as soon as he was free. We went back to the office and we sent a teletype to the Chicago PD requesting information about Clyde Beaton, supposedly registered at the Waterfield Hotel. Two hours later, at 5.43 p.m., Chicago reported that a man answering Beaton's description and using his name was staying at the Waterfield. They also confirmed the fact that he'd attended a convention dinner the previous evening. Sure comes up looking good. Sure does. Do we check him out? Well, we better talk to him when he gets back in town, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Homicide, Friday. Yes, ma'am. How long will he be there? I see. Would you ask him to wait, please? Right away. Thank you. Doctor's back in his office. You still want to show him this picture? So far, it looks like we're 100% wrong. Yeah. Can't get any worse. We drove out to Dr. Springer's office and we showed him the snapshot of Clyde Beaton. Mm-hmm. That's him. You sure, Doctor? No doubt about it. That's the young man I treated this morning. His wife says he's in Chicago. Well, that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. He does fit your description. Even the coat. Coat? Well, yes, sir. Isn't that the one you told us he was wearing? See there? The plan? But he isn't wearing... Oh, I see what you mean. What? The other chap in the picture. Yes, I believe that is the same coat. Wait, I don't follow you, Doctor. This is the young man who had the bullet in his chest, the one standing up wearing the leather jacket. Mm-hmm. But when he came to see me this morning, yes, sir. he had on this other man's coat. Dr. Springer was positive in his identification of Mrs. Beaton's brother. 7.28 p.m. We again interviewed Mrs. Beaton. Oh, it's you again. Yes, ma'am. What do you want now? Just a couple more questions. You got me so nervous before, I just didn't know what to do. I had to telephone Clyde all the way to Chicago. 
make sure he was all right. We're sorry about that, ma'am. It cost us a fortune in phone bills. He said the police back there had been bothering him, too. He couldn't imagine why. We don't want to cause you any trouble. That doesn't help any. Would you take another look at this picture, Miss Beaton? What for? I gave it to you. Yes, ma'am. You said that the other man was your brother. Is that right? What about him? What's his name, please? Tim. His last name? Larkin. Tim Larkin. Well, now, does the coat that your husband's wearing in the picture belong to him or to your brother? It's Clyde's coat, of course. He's wearing it. Is it in the house now? No, I don't know where it is. Cleaners, I guess. Wasn't here when I packed Clyde's bag last week. Your brother live in L.A.? Yes. Where about him? Well, he lived with us until a few weeks ago, and then he and a friend of his took an apartment over on Bellwood Avenue. You know the number? 261 West. What's his friend's name? What's Bill Dressingham? Went to college together. Mm-hmm. That's why Tim came to California to go to school. Our folks live back in South Dakota. I see. Did all right the first couple of years, but something happened last semester. He just sort of lost interest and quit school, both him and Bill. Got jobs and rented this apartment. I guess they're making good money. It's a very nice place. Yeah. It isn't Tim, is it? Yeah. Well, the reason you've been coming back and forth here all day. We don't know yet. Well, if anything's happened, it'll be my fault. I'm supposed to be responsible for Tim while he's in California, where the folks don't know he isn't going to school anymore. They think he's still living with us. Mm-hmm. He's a baby of the family, just turned 21. Thought I'd wait until Mom and Dad realized he's a grown man. Then I'd tell him he's on his own. Thought I'd wait till then. Maybe you waited too long. p.m. We went over to the Bellwood address Mrs. Beaton had given us. We found a card on one of the doors with the names Beaton and Dressingham on it. Yeah, who is it? Open up. What a big mosquito. All right, get your hands against the wall. Huh? Police officers, move. Turn around. Are you okay? Come on, sir. All right, he's not heavy, Joe. All right, what's your name? Tim Larkin. Unbutton your shirt. What for? Your shirt, unbutton it. Yes, sir. Where'd you get that bandage? I fell down. Come on, where'd you get it? Fell down, I said. You see a doctor? No. How do you know it isn't serious? It's getting better. You didn't see a doctor? No. Well, we've got one we'd like you to see. What are you talking about? Dr. Springer. Oh. You ever hear of him? I guess so. Well? We were just horsing around, billing me. Pull him with a gun. Who's Bill? Fell I live with. Go ahead. Gun went off. Bullet caught me in the chest, that's all. Where's the gun? What difference does it make? Where is it? Closet. All right, you stay put. I'll check. Where were you last night? What time? All of it. Here? All evening? Yes, sir. Found it, John. Well? 38. Found this, too. Is this your coat, Larkin? No. Whose is it? Brother-in-law's. Who's the gun belong to? Him. Did he give it to you? Borrowed it. Borrowed the coat too, did you? Yeah. Where were you last night? I said before, right here. Been over on Pico lately? No. You sure of that? I'm sure. This coat was. I don't know what you mean. All right, come on, son. You might as well tell us. Tell you what? We got a shell casing. Yeah? From a thirty-eight. We found it in the liquor store last night. So? The owner was killed. Lots of thirty eights around. Be real easy to check your gun against the casing we found. Well? Come on, Larkin. I guess you'll find out anyway. All right, tell us. 
I was there. Evandale Liquor Store. Yeah, me and Bill. We was going to hold up the joint. That's all. Just hold him up. Go ahead. Bill had the gun. I didn't have nothing to do with that part. He was holding the gun on the old geezer, and I went around behind to get at the cash register. Mm -hmm. Something happened. I don't know what. Maybe Bill was squeezing too hard on the trigger. Maybe he got scared. I don't know. Yeah. Gun went off. Old guy fell down. Same time I knew I felt a little pain here in my chest. Bullet must have gone through him and hit me. Yeah. Bill got all panicky. Turned around and started running. I stuck right on his heels. Where's Bill now? Bar down the street. Went out for a beer. Is he carrying a gun? No, sir. This is the only one we got. All right. Let's go. Oh, you understand that, that I didn't have nothing to do with the shooting. You understand that, don't you? It was Bill that pulled the trigger. I didn't have nothing to do with it. I wasn't even involved. Yeah, well, we don't see it that way. Huh? You ended up with a slug. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 14th, trial was held in Department 93, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. William Seaton Dressingham and Timothy Wilkes Larkin were tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. The jury returned a recommendation of leniency, and the suspects are now serving life terms at the state penitentiary, San Quentin, California. Dragnet, the story of your police force in action is a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. From Washington's birthday in 1955, a case called The Big Slug from the series Dragnet and from The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5 at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City on your smart speaker and online at WAMU.org. There are several reasons I love the series The Whistler. For starters, it has my absolute favorite opening of any old-time radio series. But I never fail to marvel at the consistent way the show always comes up with a twist at the end. It may be a gimmick, but it gets me every time, and apparently there were a lot of people like me. The series was a big hit out west, where its sponsor, the Signal Oil Company, had its gas stations, and it went national a couple of times under separate sponsorship. It inspired a series of film noir in the 40s, and toward the end of its radio run, showed up as a TV series in 1954 and 55. We're going to hear a typical episode from the very first week of 1951, and listen for some familiar voices, such as those of Gerald Moore, who was starring in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe around that time, Ed Begley, and radio perennials Lorraine Tuttle and Marvin Miller. It's a story called Hit and Run, and it comes from the CBS regional series, The Whistler. 
And now, stay tuned for the mystery program that is unique among all mystery programs. Because even when you know who is guilty, you always receive a startling surprise at the final curtain. In the Signal Oil program, The Whistler. Signal, the famous go-farther gasoline, invite you to sit back and enjoy another strange story by The Whistler. I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now for the Signal Oil Company, the Whistler's strange story, Hit and Run. It was a quiet night for San Francisco, almost too quiet. The fog, drifting in from the Pacific, had hung lazily over the city's streets at first, then settled down heavily, thicker and thicker, blotting out everything. There was something ominous about it, even to an old San Franciscan like Hillary Gaines. And although he wouldn't admit it even to himself, he was wavering. Mildred's nervousness, when he'd stopped by to pick her up, made it worse. Here it was, he kept telling himself. The moment they'd both been waiting for, planning for, anticipating for so many months. The moment when she'd make the break with her husband once and for all. Pack her bag and go away with Hillary. Yet something felt wrong somewhere. Maybe it was the fog, the stillness. All right, Hillary. I guess we're ready. Now, put your bags in the back, dear. Did you leave a note? Yes, you ought to be home any minute. Oh, probably in a bar somewhere. Come on, let's go. Well, what's the matter? I don't know. Oh, now, wait a minute, Mildred. Do I have you... the strangest feeling. Somehow, I'm afraid, Hillary. Oh, don't be ridiculous. Afraid of what? It's just it. I don't know. Well, neither do I. Come on, get in. It's just nerves. You're excited. I don't know. I keep feeling something's going to happen. Well, something has happened. You've left that no-good husband of yours. You've played nursemaid for six years, and now it's over. Yes, it's over. And what a way to end it. Sneaking off like this, leaving a note on the dining room table. Oh, what's wrong with that? I might have been more above board. Oh, forget it, Mildred. You don't owe him a thing. No, I guess I don't. Ah. But maybe I should have had it out with him. Told him I was leaving and wanted a divorce. Oh, Hillary, hmm? do you think we're doing the right thing? Oh, for the love of Mike. Mildred, we've had this out a dozen times. Now, I don't want to go over it all again. I'm sorry, dear. I'm sorry. I, I just didn't know I was going to feel like this. You're still not sure, huh? No. Okay. If you're not sure you want to go through with it, if you want to go back to that no good heel, I'll take you no, back. No, 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 Hillary. I don't want to. Well, then what do you want? Well, can't we do it some other way? Oh. As 
as you don't know what you want, I... You're going back? Yeah, I'm going to take you back. And if there ever is a next time, make sure you know what you want. Oh, this blasted fog. I can't see. Slow down, Hillary. What time is it? Um, five to seven. What time does your husband get home? Seven, usually. All right, we might make it. Now that you're going back, I just as soon he didn't see that note. He's probably home by now. I know it. Oh, Hillary, look out with that man. <gasps> you hit him. Here he is, over here. I... Mildred. Mildred, it's... It's your husband. Tommy. Oh, Tommy. Tommy. We've got to get into a hospital. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, it's too late for that. He's dead. I told you. I told you there was something wrong. Oh, it's my fault, Hillary. It's my fault. Mildred. We should never have gotten in... Now, quiet. Listen, Mildred, there's nothing we can do for him now. We've got to get out of here. What? People know about us, Mildred. They'll never believe it was an accident. They'll say we killed him on purpose. Come on, I'm going to take you home. Last Monday, on New Year's Day, practically all cars aged a whole year. Yep, even those shiny 1950s are now last year's models. But the important thing is not a car's age, but how well it runs. Why, many of you who own vintage models are today enjoying better performance than you did a year or five years ago. You are, if you're powering your cars with Signal Ethel, the premium grade of Signal's famous go-farther gasoline. After all, Signal Ethel is engineered to bring out the best in any car of any age. And when I say best, I mean best starting. Trigger quick on cold mornings. I mean best pickup that apologizes to no one when the traffic signal says go. And I mean best power that rockets you over our king-size western hills in high without balking or pinging. Who worries what year a car was made when you're enjoying driving like that? And you can enjoy it if you just head for a signal station. See if your car doesn't feel younger, much younger. When you treat it to a tank full of signal ethyl. So you made a decision, didn't you, Hillary? You had a choice and you made it. You figure it's far safer to take a chance on getting caught on a hit-and-run charge than it would be to face the police and the prying neighbors and try to explain that it was pure coincidence that caused you to run down Tommy Hardwick a few blocks from his home. Pure coincidence that you happened to be riding with his wife, Mildred, at the time. Yes, it flashes through your mind during the few seconds you and she stand there in the fog, looking down at him. And you think it over carefully as you drive her back to her home. You better sit down a minute, Mildred. Oh. Did, did it really happen, Hillary? Huh? Did we do it? Is he dead? Now, take it easy, dear. It's going to be all right. It doesn't seem real. The fog, the silence. Looking down at him lying in the street. Oh, Hillary. Mildred. I can't help it. 
What have we done? Now, listen to me, Mildred. We've got to talk. I can't. I can't think about it anymore. I said, listen to me. Please, Hillary. Please don't. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. But, darling, you may as well face it. There's only one way out. Somebody may have seen No one saw us. Now, listen. We've got to play it straight. What? Here's what you've got to do. Company, please. Hello? I'd like to speak to Mr. Hardwick, please. This is his wife. He's gone? Well, when did he leave? But that's two hours ago. I don't understand. All right, thank you. But you see, I thought Mr. Hardwick might have stopped off at the club on his way home. He's over an hour late now, and he hasn't telephoned. You last see him, Ed. But he's never been this late before. Well, I've had dinner ready for an hour. Well, maybe I better, Ed. I'm worried sick. Mrs. Hardwick? Yes? Nolan, police headquarters. Oh, is something wrong? Mind if I come in? No, no. Please, come in. Thanks. Sit down. Thanks. What is it, Mr. Nolan? I've got a tough job, Mrs. Hardwick. Sometimes I think I ought to be in the haberdashery business or something. Well, did you come here to tell me that? No, I came to tell you that... Uh, that uh... It's Tommy, isn't it? Yeah. Something's happened to him. Can you take it? Tell me. He was killed tonight by a hit-and-run driver. <gasps> killed? Yeah, a man and a woman. What? I'm sorry, Mrs. Hardwick. Believe me, I'm not going to rest until we hook those two and throw the book at them. Did you say a, a man and a woman? Yeah, in a club coupe, we think. Happened about eight blocks from here. They ran into him in the fog, stopped, got out and looked him over, and then got back in the car and drove away. Someone saw them? Yeah, two people saw them. A lady in the apartment on the corner heard the crash and saw them out of her window. Couldn't tell much in the fog, but uh, she gave us something to go on anyway. What about the other one? That's what makes us think there's something haywire somewhere. The lady in the corner apartment saw the car that hit your husband pull up alongside a parked car. Two people got out, ran back, checked the body, and then drove off. Ten seconds later, the lights in the parked car go on, and it drives off, too. Oh. Yeah, it surprised me, too. Our prize witness was still sitting in that parked car all the time, and he hasn't showed up yet. Now, but don't worry, Mrs. Hardwick. There isn't much we can do about your husband, but we're sure going to nail that guy and his girlfriend. Well, we'll make the inquest business as easy as possible for you. I'll call you tomorrow. Thank you, Mr. Nolan. Okay, I know how you feel. If I were you, I'd, I'd call up a friend or something. It's a bum time to be alone. Thanks. Good night, Mrs. Hardwick. Good night. Hillary. Hillary. I heard it all. What are we going to do? The street was wet. They probably got tired, right? Sure they know everything. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That woman in the apartment, she couldn't have seen much in the fog. What about... Yeah, yeah, I know. The guy in the park car. How will we ever find him? Don't worry about that, baby. He's probably going to find us. <laughs> Yes, Hillary, the man in the parked car is a problem, isn't he? It's obvious he saw everything. He was close enough to even see your license number in the fog. 
close enough to hear what you and Mildred said to each other before you drove off. For the next day or two, you can feel the sword hanging over you. But strangely enough, nothing happens. The inquest goes off without a hitch. The woman in the apartment offers nothing in addition to her original statement. You have the dent in your fender repaired, buy four second-hand tires, and dispose of the ones on your car. A few more days pass, and you begin to relax a little. Perhaps the man in the parked car has reasons for keeping out of it, being involved as a material witness. Yes, maybe that's it. Then a week later, you're sitting at your desk at the office when... Yes? There's a Mr. Baldwin to see you, Mr. Gaines. Baldwin? I don't know anyone by that name. What does he want? He says it's about insurance. Oh, well, tell him I have plenty of insurance. I did. He says it's extremely... Confound it. I just told... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What kind of insurance? Just a moment. Accident insurance, Mr. Gaines. I see. Send him in. I apologize for intruding, Mr. Gaines. I realize you're a busy man. Sit down. Oh, thank you. To set you straight, Mr. Baldwin, I'm already insured to the hilt. My lawyer advises me I'm covered for all possible contingencies, and I... Of course, of course. My card, Mr. Gaines. Oh? I've been connected for some years with the Valley Indemnity, most reliable company. I see. And in addition to the coverage the company offers, I do a little underwriting on the side. You see, uh, although the insurance business is one of our oldest and most venerable professions, we have yet to devise a policy which covers all risks. What do you mean by that? Uh, The human factor, Mr. Gaines, is one that no one has ever been able to reduce to statistics. And consequently is a risk no company can afford to underwrite. Please, be specific. (laughs) Well, you are obviously a man under pressure, Mr. Gaines. I dare say you're in need of the type of coverage I'm offering at this very moment. You see, I'll protect you from loss resulting from, uh, shall we say, hasty and unwise decisions. See here, I Uh, think... Just a moment, Mr. Gaines. Uh, To be specific, the decision you and Mrs. Hardwick made the other night at 15th and Maple Streets. I happened to be there at the time, and I said to myself, now there is a man who needs insurance. I see. And what about the premium? (laughs) I thought you'd understand. Of course, I'll write up our customary public liability policy. That doesn't amount to very much. But uh, the premiums on the other coverage run rather high, Mr. I expect they do. Uh, Shall we say an even 500 for full coverage? And uh, how long does the coverage last? I've been thinking for some time about changing my connections. They tell me there are lots of opportunities in South America. When are you leaving? Very soon, I hope. So do I. All right, Mr. Baldwin, I'll buy your policy. And I hope you're not kidding about South America. How much do you want this time? Uh, $2,000. I won't pay it. You would pay it, however, if you had my assurance that this is the last time. I expect I would. Oh, very well, you have my word. Uh, I'll drop by this afternoon for the cash. Now, an oil well is one of the most profitable of investments, Mr. Gaines, and I'm sure you'll find this venture a wise one. Uh, when you consider the future, of course... Oh, uh, by the way, I expect to be leaving next week. 
$2,300. Congratulations, Mr. Gaines. You are part owner of the Narcissus Mine. It's too bad in a way that I've had to postpone my trip to South America until Friday. You dirty leech, get out of my office. Now, 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 wait a moment, Mr. Gaines. I'll kill you. I, I knew you'd come to that eventually, so I've made provision for it. You see, I've written a complete account of your and Mildred Hardwick's unfortunate accident at 15th and Maple Streets to be opened and read publicly in the event of my death. You... You've thought of everything, haven't you? I'm pleased to think so. Now, I think it would be rather unwise for you to make another unfortunate decision, don't you? Especially in view of my projected trip to South America. Helpless, aren't you, Hillary? There's no way out now. You change inwardly as things go on. What was anger and outrage have turned into fear. But Mr. Baldwin's periodic visits have made quite a dent in your assets, haven't they, Hillary? The day isn't far off when there'll be nothing left to pay him. If you could only get your hands on the account he's written about the hit-and-run accident, the uh, protection he's provided for himself. Yes. You'd kill him if it weren't for that, wouldn't you, Hillary? Then at last, you get a lucky break. I know where it is, Mildred. I found out where it is. What? The account he's written. The thing that's going to be open if he dies. What is it? In a bank on Market Street. I saw him today and followed him. It's in a safe deposit box. I'm sure of it. But does that do it? All right, now, wait a minute. He keeps the key on him. I was standing in the crowd when he took it from his pocket and went into the gate. Hillary, you're not going... Never mind, Mildred. Let me make that decision. made that decision already, haven't you, Hillary? You've known for weeks that there was only one way out. And the moment you saw him walk into the safe deposit department in the bank on Market Street, you decided to take the chance. You follow him home a few days later. Note the garage where he keeps his car. Watch him as he walks the block and a half to his apartment on the other side of the street. That's important, isn't it, Hillary? He lives on the other side of the street from the garage. You were careful to notice he wasn't recognized at sight by the clerk at the bank and gather that he hasn't been in the city long enough to be known. That fits too, doesn't it? So it's all planned carefully when he calls you a few days later. First of all, Mr. Gaines, I want to impress on you that I have my reservations. I'm leaving Monday for South America. Yes, of course. There are a few matters I'd like to clear up before I leave. I must deliver your insurance policy, of course. And then there's the matter of the radium. Oh, it's radium this time, huh? Yes, an exploration company I've incorporated. Uh-huh. I'm sure you'll want to invest a thousand or so, Mr. Gaines. Uh, I'll call on you sometime tonight. You'll have the money. Yeah, I'll have the money, but look, if you don't mind, I'd rather call on you. Will you be home tonight? I expect to be home later in the evening. What time? Oh, about ten or so. Uh, is there some reason for this, Mr. Gaines? Oh, yes. A very important one. I, I'll explain when I arrive. I see. You will be alone, of course. Of course I'll be alone. You don't think I want to advertise our little private transactions, do you? No, I'm sure you don't. Very well, Mr. Gaines. I live at 2201 Marchway, apartment 308. That's fine, Baldwin. I'll be there. Ten o'clock. Ten o'clock. 
Okay, it's all planned, isn't it? At nine o'clock, you're sitting in the coffee shop across the street from the garage in which Mr. Baldwin leaves his car. You thank your lucky stars for the weather. The fog is rolled in again, making it difficult to see clearly more than a hundred feet. Promptly at 9.45, you see his car roll into the garage entrance. And two minutes later, you're sitting at the wheel of your car, waiting for him to come out. Suddenly, you recognize him as he comes out. The plump figure, the rolling walk. You wait until he gets halfway up the block, about to cross, and then... There's your payment, Mr. Baldwin. Yeah, he's dead, all right. Now the keys. His wallet. There we are. Who? Hey, what's happened here? Oh, officer, I, I'm afraid. Let me see. Yeah, well, it, it looks, yeah. looks like... Yeah, he's dead. Good thing you stopped. I hate to see you pull a hit and run when it was his fault. Dumb pedestrian. Uh, what's that? I'll have to take your name, of course. Uh, you know who he is? Why, uh, no, no, I don't. I'll have to check. Oh, well, will I be called? No, no, I... no, don't worry about it, mister. Saw the whole thing. Guy stepped out from behind a parked car in the middle of the block. We won't have to hold you. That was unexpected, wasn't it, Hillary? You can't help wondering about the unbelievable stroke of luck that night. As you put Baldwin's driver's license before you and practice his signature over and over again. Ten times. A hundred. A thousand. Finally, you can forge his signature perfectly. You're ready now for your visit to the safe deposit box tomorrow. I'm sorry. Pardon me. I'm very sorry. Excuse me, please. Yes, sir? Uh, George Baldwin, box 1438. Yes, sir. Sign here, please. Do you have your key? Oh, yes. Uh, there you are. All right. Oh, uh, Baldwin, 1438. Let me see. I have a note here. What? Just a moment, please. Oh, Yes, here it is. It's about the rental on the box. Oh. Three and a half due on the 15th of last month. Oh, yes, yes. Well, it must have slipped my mind. Uh, uh, here. Here you are. Thank you, sir. This way, please. Uh. You can take it in one of those booths over there. Thank you. Concerned to be open in the event of my death. Let's see. This is to certify that on the night of May 10th, I witnessed a hit and run accident at the intersection of 15th and Maple Streets in which two men. Man, oh, thank heaven I've got it. I'm in the clear. They can't touch us now. <laughs> looking up, aren't they, Hillary? It isn't hard to find answers for the routine questions they asked you at headquarters later that day. You obeyed the law to the letter, didn't you? 
stopped immediately, did everything you could for the victim, cooperated with the officer. You're sure now that they can't touch you. Now that the letter marked to whom it may concern is gone, the wallet and the keys disposed of. Mr. Baldwin has been paid off, hasn't he, Hillary? In the only currency he understood. But a week later, when you drop by to see Mildred, you find her a little skeptical. Hillary, dear, you shouldn't have come. You know we agreed it was best to stay apart and for Mr. Baldwin. Don't worry about Mr. Baldwin, Mildred. <laughs> I told you he won't be back. But how can you be sure? He's a chronic liar. Everything he's told you, everything he promised. I told you he's through. I had it out with him once and for all. I don't believe it. He'll be back. He won't stop until you've given him every penny you have. Mildred, honey, will you please forget Mr. Baldwin? How can I? He's ruined everything we've ever... It's... Who's that? I don't know. Answer it. I'll be in the bedroom. Hello, Mrs. Hardwick. Mr. Nolan. I'd like to talk to Mr. Gaines, if you don't mind. Mr. Gaines? Well, he's here. I saw him come in. Hillary. Tell him to take his time. I got all evening. Hillary. What's the matter? Just checking further into the uh, accidental death of Mr. Baldwin the other night. Oh, I thought you'd be surprised, Mrs. Hardwick. Uh, Gaines, we found something in Baldwin's pocket that might interest you. Here. Report said you claimed you didn't know him, Gaines. This policy is made out to you. Why, I... I guess I didn't recognize you. Sure. Well? Another funny thing. He puts his car in the public garage, locks it, walks out. Gets knocked over half a block away, and his keys are gone. Somebody got to him and took him, huh? Somebody who wanted the key to a safe deposit box. Now, wait a minute. You have no right to we come in here. We know it was there because there was a notice in his pocket saying payment on the box was overdue. What's that got to do with me? Oh. As a matter of fact, we checked the box and found that according to the time stamp on the bank slip, someone impersonating Baldwin visited the box. Forged Baldwin's signature. Sixteen hours after Baldwin was killed. Now, look, I still don't know why you think he that I... He was taking you down, wasn't he? Well, wasn't he? No, no. Of course not. We know Baldwin, Mr. Gaines. Been checking on his record during the past few months. We got a good idea he hit you for the biggest bite of all on the night he got killed. Hillary! You can't. I... It's not true. But I talk fast to a smart lawyer, because when you add a motive like blackmail to accidental death like Baldwin's, you'll get first-degree murder. No. You see, a blackmailer is like a hit-and-run artist. The big bite comes just before he skips, and Baldwin was skipping. He had a ticket in his pocket, Mr. Gaines, a ticket on the next ship to South America. will be your signal for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, each Sunday night at this same time. Signal Oil Company has asked me to remind you again that if you want a free copy of that 12-page booklet on the exciting new three-deck card game, Hollywood Canasta, you'd better stop by a Signal station soon so as not to be disappointed. No purchase required, no obligation. A copy is yours for the asking while the supply lasts. <laughs> Featured in tonight's story were Bill Foreman, Gerald Moore, Lorene Tuttle, Ed Begley, Marvin Miller, and Herb Litton. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Joseph Cochran, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. 
The Whistler is entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Remember, at the same time next Sunday, another strange tale by The Whistler. Marvin Miller speaking for the Signal Oil Company. Stay tuned now for our Miss Brooks starring Eve Arden, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Whistler, the episode called Hit and Run from January 7th, 1951, and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The greatest two minutes in sports, as it's called, the Kentucky Derby, will be a springtime event again this year, with spectators in attendance this coming Saturday, May 1st. Last year's event was held in September due to the pandemic, and it featured a horse named Necker Island, who finished precisely in the middle of the pack. More about him in a minute. In honor of Derby Day, we're going to hear a Jack Benny show that makes much of Mr. Benny's recent purchase of a racehorse. You'll hear lots of horse racing terms, including tout, describing those guys who hang out at racetracks, giving you putative tips on winners, and there are references to the great thoroughbred man of war and, unrelated to horse racing, the actor Carol Lombard and the girth of announcer Don Wilson. In addition to him, Mary Livingston, the band leader Phil Harris, and the singer Kenny Baker, gravel-voiced Andy Devine is on hand with his partner Sam Hearn as the Yiddish-accented stereotype Schlepperman. Not appearing on this particular program is Eddie Anderson, who, better known by his character name Rochester, became the first African-American owner to enter a horse in the Kentucky Derby in 1943. He was, in fact, the last African-American owner to have an entry in the big race until that ninth-place finisher last year, Necker Island. His owners included businessman Ray Daniels and Greg Harbett, and Mr. Harbett's great-grandfather had been one of the caretakers of the aforementioned Hall of Fame horse, Man o' War. All this was in the future, though, on May 15, 1938, when NBC aired this edition of the Jell-O program starring Jack Benny. J-E-L-L-O The Jell-O program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston and Phil Harris and his orchestra. The orchestra opens a program with Life Begins When You're In Love. that you can have delicious things to eat and to save money at the same time, but sometimes you can. And Jell-O makes the most attractive desserts and salads you ever tasted, and Jell-O is amazingly inexpensive. It costs only a few cents a package. One package serves the average family generously, and they love it. Jell-O is America's favorite gelatin dessert, and no wonder. For only Jell-O brings you Jell-O's delicious extra-rich fruit flavor. Strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. All six are packed with that ripe fruit goodness, fresh and tempting and satisfying. 
So for that extra-rich fruit flavor, and for one of the most economical desserts you can serve, be sure to get genuine Jell-O. Don't accept any substitutes. Look for the big red letters on the box. They spell Jell-O. begins when you're in love, played by the orchestra. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you a man who has joined the ranks of Hollywood turfmen and bought himself a racehorse, Jack Benny. Thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Don, I don't know where you pick up all this information about me. Now, how did you find out that I bought a racehorse? Well, Jack, I was talking to Bing Crosby the other day, and he just happened to mention it. Oh, yes, Bing knows about it. As a matter of fact, I've been trying to put my horse in Crosby's stable, but it's too crowded there. Why, Crosby has an enormous stable. There's plenty of room there for your horse. All right, then he wanted too much money. <laughs> I wouldn't pay him $80 a week to board my horse if he sang it to sleep every night. <laughs> Oh, I'll find another place for him, all right. Oh, I'm sure you will. Oh, and Jack, uh, you know, I'm a pretty good rider, so if you ever need a jockey, think of me. <laughs> I've got a horse, Don, not a 20-mule team. <laughs> well, your shadow alone would break his back. Say, <laughs> hey, Jack, how'd you happen to buy a racehorse? You don't know anything about horses? I don't, eh? Well, it might interest you to know, Phil, that I was kicked in the face at the age of 10. <laughs> Buy a horse? Yes. How did that happen? Well, my father sent me out to feed him, and it was dark in the barn. <laughs> now, believe me, fellas, I know plenty about horses. <laughs> but why this secrecy? Why didn't you tell us about your horse before? Well, I didn't want people to think I was showing off or doing it for publicity. You know how modest I am, you know? <laughs> Yeah, what's the name of your horse? Buck Benny. <laughs> and you're going to hear from that, baby. If I'm any judge of thoroughbreds, he's going places. Well, uh, tell us more about it, Jack. Is it a yearling? Uh, what's that, Don? Is it a yearling? Uh, well, it's a sort of a back bay color. <laughs> with, a, with a black spot on his nose. Oh, you don't understand, Jack. Is it a yearling? In other words, how old is it? Oh, 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 it, it was two It was two years old in January. So I wish you'd talk a little plainer, Don. I didn't quite get you there, you know? <laughs> but it's a real thoroughbred, and I know. By the way, Jack, who's your horse's sire? What is that, Phil? <laughs> I said, who's the sire? The sire? Yes. Well, I am. I paid for the horse. <laughs> What a silly question. Jeffel, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, do you? I don't, eh? Well, let's see what you know. Is your horse a gelding or a filly? A what? Is it a gelding or a filly? Is it a gelding or a filly? Is it a gelding or a filly? <laughs> Trying to be smart, making up words. I'm not. 
I'm not making up words. Is it a gelding or a filly? In other words, is it a boy or a girl? It's a horse! <laughs> My goodness, you're just a dodo if there ever was one. You won't be so smart when he wins the Irish sweepstakes. Well, have you got me. a trainer for him, Jack? A trainer? No, I just bought him a rowing machine. That'll keep him... I'll keep him in shape, all right. A rowing machine? Well, that settles it. You don't know any more about horses than I know about music. Oh, I don't. I don't. I don't know anything about horses, eh? I used to be a trout. Trout? Yes, a trout, and I gave out plenty of good tips, believe me. You're a fine turf man. Yeah. How many legs has your horse got? My horse has four legs, Marty. How do you know? I bought him a blanket with two pair of pants and shut up. <laughs> believe me, I'm sorry the whole thing came up. Hello, Jack. For heaven's sake, what's the matter now? Well, what would it be? Phil and Don found out that I bought a racehorse, and you can guess the rest. Have you boys been picking on Jack again? Oh, don't interfere, Mary. I can fight my own battles. Why, you fellas ought to be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. Jack knows more about horses than both of you put together. Yeah. He even tried to get Lady Godiva for a jockey. <laughs> I did not. And why did you put blinkers on the horse? Oh, you're just making things up, that's all. So you've seen that nag of Jack's, huh, Mary? Oh, sure, a couple of times. Well, is it a good horse? Uh, what does it look like? Looks like any minute two men are going to step out of it. <laughs> it does not. It's a fine-looking steed. Oh, it is. And gee, fellas, you ought to see the way Jack pampers that horse. Pampers him? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, Mary? Jack bought him shoes with art supporters. <laughs> now, look, fellas, Mary's giving you the wrong impression. Now, here's a picture of him, Don. He's a pretty good-looking animal, isn't he? Say, he is at that. Yeah. Hey, Jack, let me see that picture, will you? Here you are, Kenny. What do you think of him? Oh, boy, he's a beauty. Looks pretty fast, doesn't he? I'll say he does. But why is he laying on his back? <laughs> Kenny, turn the picture around like this. There. Huh? Well, I'll be darned. He got up. Yeah. He does all kinds of tricks like that. Now, go ahead and sing your song, Kenny, and give me back that picture. Say, wait a minute. Let me have a look at that. Here you are, Phil. Well, is that a real horse or isn't it? A good-looking animal, all right. But wait a minute. What's this stamped on the back of the picture? Where? Right there. It says Man of War. Man of War? Well, that's the name of the photographer, Joe Man of War. <laughs> He's a Greek fella. Oh, sing, Kenny. Yeah, I must have picked up the wrong picture. <laughs> Time we meet is all the same 
singing I Fall in Love with You Every Day. That was a beautiful number, Kenny, and a very romantic thought. Thanks, Jack. And dedicate that song to your horse. To my horse? Why? Well, I'm mad at my girl. Oh, oh, a little snip. <laughs> Kenny, gee, I never saw a kid like you always getting a new girlfriend, then picking a fight with her. What's the matter with you? Oh, I don't know. I guess I'm just a gorilla. <laughs> Kenny, you're a simian, but not quite a gorilla. Well, he's young yet. Yeah. And now... And now, ladies and gentlemen, going from the zoo to our play, tonight we are going to present what we think is an... Oh, Jack, Jack, pardon me for interrupting, but I just noticed that your shoelace is untied. My shoelace? Oh, so it is. Thanks, Don. Excuse me a minute, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, while Jack is bending down to tie his shoelace, why don't you skip out and buy yourself a package of Jell-O? Oh, so that's your little trick, huh? It comes in six delicious flavors, strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. Hurry back now. Ah, folks, what other program starts on a shoestring and ends up with a plug? <laughs> Don, that was a very clever ruse. Now, as I was saying, ladies and gentlemen, tonight, for the first time this year, we are going to offer our annual murder mystery. We feel that this will be a high spot in the career of the Benny Federal Theater Project. <laughs> So now we will present a deep, dark mystery entitled Murder in the Library, or Book Marks the Spot. <laughs> Gee, isn't that clever, folks? Uh, and I thought of that all by myself. You laughed all by yourself, too. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Mary. That was a very funny title. I can't help it if our studio audience didn't get it. But I'll bet our listening audience liked it. We did not. <laughs> Now, in our little drama, which will go on immediately after the next number, the cast of characters will... Uh, pardon me, folks. Come in. Hiya, Buck. Hello, Stanza. Well. Well, well, if it isn't Damon and Pythias. Well, I haven't seen you two fellas in weeks. Where have you been keeping yourselves? Oh, we've been pretty busy, Buck. Me on my farm and Schlepp on his. Oh, that's right. Schlepp did buy part of your farm. How's it going, Schlepp? Have you planted anything yet? Yes, but believe me, Jack, it's no good. I'm having plenty of trouble. 
Well, that's too bad. What's the matter with her? I struck oil last week and it ruined my potatoes. <laughs> oil? Why, that's great, isn't it? What kind of oil is it? The man oil. He's trying to sell that property back to me. Oh, well, I don't blame him if it isn't good land. Well, he shouldn't complain. I gave him a rock-bottom price on it. Yes, that's all I got was rocks. Our cactus wouldn't grow there. Well, naturally, Slep, you got to clear the land first. You know, break up the rocks and cart them off. Say, what am I, a chain gang? <laughs> well, you just don't know anything about farming, that's all. Is that so? I'm a good farmer. A fine farmer. He bends over in front of goats. <laughs> he does? Now, listen, Mr. DeWine. <laughs> What about those rabbits you sold me? Oh, fine rabbits. Well, what about it? I sold you two of them, didn't I? That's the trouble. I still only got two. Now, wait a minute, boys. Wait a minute. Look, boys, you can settle your own troubles when you get home. Let's talk about something else. Uh, tell them about your horse, Jack. Oh, yes. You know, fellas, I bought a racehorse. Yeah, that's right, Buck. I heard about that. Hey, I'll bet you he's a regular pumpoony. Yes, he's... Is all right, but I'm having trouble finding a place to keep him. Oh, why don't you keep him on my farm, Buck? I got a nice pasture for him. Keep him on my farm. I'll dye the rocks green. <laughs> well, that's a good idea. I'll tell you what I'll do, fellas. I'll split it between you. Andy, I'll let you feed him for seven days. And Schlepp, you can feed him for seven days. How's that? <laughs> what are you laughing at, Mary? Promotes tomatoes in one week. Never mind. How does that strike you, boys? Now, wait a minute, Buck. If I were you, I wouldn't let Schlepperman have that horse. Why not? He'll put rockers on it and give it to his kid. Well, I'll take a chance. Now, you, you each get him for one week, and I want you to take good care of him. He's a very delicate animal. Well, leave it to me, Buck. I'll take him first. Now, wait a minute, Henry. I want him for the first week. No, sir. I got to have him right now. I got a lot of plowing to do. <laughs> Fine for my racehorse. Say, how much are you guys going to charge me? Don't worry about it, Jackie boy. If he wins the Kentucky Derby, you'll break even. I thought so. Now, come over here a minute, boys. We'll talk this little deal over and down. Uh, play something, Phil, while I do a little dickering. Now, look, boys. My horse...
tells me, played by Phil Harris and his orchestra. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we will present our thrilling, baffling, spine-tingling melodrama entitled Murder in the Library, or Book Marks the Spot. <laughs> Gee, I love that. Boy, are you corny. <laughs> Go away, Mary. Now, I will play the part of Police Captain O'Benny, as brave a blue coat as ever wore bulletproof undies. <clears throat> Phil Harris and Kenny Baker will be my brave, loyal, and stupid assistants. Here's your badge, Phil. Okay, Chief. Here, Kenny, here's your badge, your uniform, and your club. Okay, where's my fat feet? <laughs> On the opposite end of your flat head. Oh, that's right. Hmm. <laughs> Now, Mary Livingston will play the part of Mrs. Sugar Clunkenbush, a much-married society woman who makes a hobby of collecting husbands, guns, and life insurance. Gee, do I have to kill all my husbands? You've already killed seven of them, Mary, and there's just one left. Oh. One little husband sitting on a fence. Boom, boom, boom. I shot him in the pants. <laughs> well, I suppose that wasn't corny. I suppose you didn't write it. Quiet. <laughs> Now, the part of the butler will be played by Don Wilson, who has been in the service of Mrs. Clunkenbush for about, uh... Oh, Don, how long have you been with Mrs. Clunkenbush? It'll be uh, six husbands in October. I think. <laughs> and now for our play, folks. The scene opens at police headquarters where we find Cap O'Benny very busy playing solitaire. Curtain. Music. <laughs> Let's see. There's the jack of clubs. Here's a seven of hearts. I'll put that on the jack. No, I won't do that. That would be cheating. Or should I? No, I won't. Hey, Cap. Yeah? What's the idea of playing solitaire with handcuffs on you? I don't trust myself. I need the ace of spades, and it's up my sleeve. I'll get it for you. Oh, no, you won't. Why, you dirty crook, I ought to put you in jail. Now, let's see. Is that the phone, Cap? It ain't a Swiss vaudeville act. <laughs> Cap O'Benny speaking. Yes, sir. What? You say your wife ran away eight months ago. Oh, why didn't you report it sooner? Oh, you wanted to give her a good start. <laughs> what? No, don't worry. I won't rush. Goodbye. Now, let's see. The six of hearts goes on the black king. Oh, I wish I wouldn't do that. But how else can I win? <laughs> oh, Cap! Cap! What is it, Sergeant Baker? Somebody's been passing phony one-dollar bills all over town, and I've got one of them. A dollar bill, eh? How do you know it's phony? Washington is wearing Lincoln's beard. <laughs> hmm. Let me see that. You're right, and he's wearing Lincoln's hat, too. You think that's something? Turn the bill over. Good heavens, Carol Lombard is sitting on the eagle. <laughs> nice work, Baker. We gotta report this to Washington. Can you get any more of these bills? Yeah, my uncle makes them. <laughs> Your uncle? Well, you better tell him to stop or else. Hey, Cap, Cap. What is it, Harris? You know the prisoner in cell 21 that sent his suit out to be pressed? Yes. Well, he was in it. <laughs> I'll wait for that one. All right. <laughs> Hang out the vacancy sign and don't annoy me. <laughs> hmm, I'll take it. Hello, Capo Benny speaking. What? A murder? Yes, yes, hold everything. We'll be right over. Hey, fellas, what do you know? We've got a murder. Hooray! We've got a murder. We've got a murder. Yippee! I knew we'd get one if we waited long enough. Come on, fellas, let's go right over. Where are we going, Chief? 
to... Uh... Oh, darn it, I forgot to get the address. Gee, I hope they call back. That's a fine how-do-you-do. We wait around all year for a murder, we get one and you lose it. Wait, I know. It must be Mrs. Clunkenbush on Park Avenue. She married her eighth husband two months ago, and he's about due for his lead anniversary. <laughs> Come on, boys. Let's go. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Go to 215 Maple Street. Man beating up wife. That is all. Hmm, man beating up wife. Make a note of that, Sarge. I got it, Chief. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Go to 215 Maple Street. She's beating him up now. That is all. Hmm. <laughs> Turn up that note, Sarge. Okay, Chief. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. Go to your nearest grocer and ask for a package of Jell-O. That is all. Hmm. <laughs> well, I see our police department finally got a sponsor. <laughs> This is the house right here. Baker, you break down the door. Okay, hold my banana. <laughs> I told you a thousand times not to eat on the job. Now break down the door. Let's give him a hand, Harris. Ready, set, go. Well, we've got that down. Here comes somebody now. Did you ring, gentlemen? Ring? No, we didn't. We're the police. Who are you? I'm Blimp, the butler. <laughs> <laughs> Blimp, the butler, eh? Yes, and I didn't do it. You didn't do what? Goodness, haven't you heard? We think Mr. Clunkenbush has been murdered. What makes you think so? Well, he's in the library reading a book, and he hasn't turned a page in three days. <laughs> make a note of that, Sarge. Gotcha, Chief. Can I make a note, too? Quiet. Now, tell me, Blimp, where's Mrs. Clunkenbush? Right this way, gentlemen. She's out in the garden, burying the gun. Oh, burying the gun, eh? Her husband is murdered, and she's out in the garden, burying the gun. What do you make of that, Baker? She doesn't need it anymore. <laughs> now you're clicking, you cluck. <laughs> Come on, Glenn, take us to Mrs. Clunkenbush. Right this way, you bums. Come on, men. Aha! We got you this time, Mrs. Clunkenbush. Oh, how do you do, Captain? I've been rather expecting you. Oh, you have. Now, there's no use calling, Clunky. <laughs> Your butler, Blimp, broke down and confessed. Blimp broke down, eh? Yes. I knew I should have filled him with helium. <laughs> now, listen. You just buried a gun in this garden, didn't you? I buried a dagger, too. Oh, so you not only shot your husband, but you stabbed him, too. Yep, we got the daily double. <laughs> Well, you've gone too far, Mrs. Clunkenbush. You've had eight husbands in four years, haven't you? What about us? And they all met untimely deaths. Take your first husband, the big game hunter. You went on a hunting trip with him, and he's the first thing you shot. Well, he looked like a gazelle. That's no excuse. And your second husband. Uh, you mean Pasquale? Yes, Pasquale. You no sooner fell in love with him than we found him laying on the floor with an arrow in his back. You did that. Could have been Cupid, you know. That's what you told the jury. And your third husband. Was killed, too. What happened to him? All I did was slap him on the back. Yes, but he was leaning out of a penthouse window at the time. <laughs> and what about your fourth husband? Oh, this is getting boresome. It is, eh? Oh, hello, Philzy. I didn't see you standing there. Hello, sweetheart. Sergeant Harris, do you know this woman? Yes, we're engaged to be married. I'm going to be her next husband. Well, congratulations and rest in peace. <laughs> Now, let's go in and look at the body. 
Hey, Cap, Cap. What is it, Baker? I was in the library just now, and I don't think Mr. Cluckenbush is dead yet. How do you know? I went to reach for his pulse, and he shook hands with me. <laughs> well, let's hurry up in there. Imagine a man shot and stabbed and still alive. There he is, Cap. Mr. Clunkenbush. Mr. Clunkenbush, how do you feel? A little drafty. <laughs> well, I shouldn't wonder. Now, tell me, can you name the person or persons who try to kill you? Why, of course I can. I was here at the time. Then tell me exactly what happened. Make notes on this, Harris. Okay, Chief. Now, go ahead. Well, I was sitting here in the library reading a book. Uh-huh. When all of a sudden, the door behind me opened. Yes. So I turned around and said, free me, see the party state. Of course, I couldn't tell the race of the table. Well, I said, rain it all. And I figured my eyes were going to save the race of the table. And right at the time the horse was yeah. great beat, who was standing? Oh, it was ghastly. <laughs> the man must be hysterical. Now, Mr. Conkenbush, say that again and slower. This is important. All right. I was sitting in the library reading a book, and my was saying the motor sent it to me. Oh, she seven. came in. No, they were saying that five or so. Oh, she didn't come in. No, I was understanding. Oh, she came in. Oh, she... He's delirious now. He's getting weaker. Quick, get him a glass of water. Here you are, Captain. Thanks. Now drink this, quick. How do you feel now? Oh. Good heavens, he's dead. Mrs. Clunkenbush, what was in that glass of water? Well, I only put in a saffron of saffrony, and then I was a saffron of cloth and that's the truth. Move over, Clunkenbush, I'm tired. Play, Phil. Everybody loves homemade ice cream. Ice cream that's rich and creamy smooth. Grand ice cream. And here's a new and better way to make it. It's made with Jell-O freezing mix and made just perfect. For Jell-O freezing mix is a wonderful new product that gives you ice cream that's velvety and rich. It has a beautiful creamy texture that's simply grand and it's amazingly quick and easy to prepare. Open a can of Jell-O freezing milk. Add milk and some whipped cream and turn the mixture into your freezing trays. Stir only once during the whole freezing process and take out six servings of delicious ice cream. One of your favorite flavors will be rich, smooth chocolate. The chocolate flavor that can't be beat. Then there's maple walnut, real vanilla, and fruit flavors that are real fruits in their own sweetened juices. Strawberry, tutti frutti, and orange pineapple. There are six luscious flavors in all. If your grocer hasn't any in stock, he'll be glad to order it for you. So ask him tomorrow for Jell-O Freezing Mix. Uh, this is the last number of the 33rd program of the new Jell-O series, and we'll be with you again next Sunday night at the same time when we will present our version of David O. Selznick's outstanding film production, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So be sure and listen in. And guess who's going to be Tom Sawyer, folks? No kidding, Jack. Are you going to be Tom Sawyer? Of course I am, Mary. Do you think you can have your face lifted by next Sunday? I think so, yes. Good night, folks. J-E-L-L-O, This is the National Broadcasting Company. The Jell-O Program, starring Jack Benny and friends from 83 years ago this month, and from the big broadcast, I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, 
on your smart speaker and online at wamu.org. We probably don't mention it often enough, but one of the big changes in American cultural life between the time when most of these old-time radio shows appeared and the way things are nowadays is the vastly different sports scene. In the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, baseball was the dominant team game, and the other professional sports getting the headlines were horse racing and boxing. It's why we hear so many references to those three sports in the programs on the big broadcast, and almost none about pro basketball, hockey, and football. We just heard a Jack Benny show that depended on its listeners' knowledge of thoroughbred racing, and now we're going to hear a radio drama about a boxer. In 1949, more than half a century before the disorder CTE was identified in football players, a British neurologist published a paper called Punch Drunk Syndromes, the Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy of Boxers. The very next year, this radio play appeared in the U.S. titled The Darkened Ring. It comes from November 7, 1950, and the Mutual Network series John Steele, Adventurer. with a gnawing hunger for glory. Let him hear the thundering roar of a fight crowd in his ear. That's our story. The Darkened Ring, taken from the files of John Steele, adventurer. friends. This is John Steele. Every once in a while I reach way back in my files and pull out a story I want to hear. One of those uh, off-the-beaten-track tales of haunting mood and smoldering action. This is that kind of story. Now, I first met Joe West when I was a sports writer for one of the big New York newspapers. He's quite a different guy now than he was the first time I saw him, but I'll let him tell you about it. Joe? How do you get mixed up in the fight racket? I don't know. There's something about it. Smoke in the gym, the feel of a glove in your hand, the sweat, the blood, the roar of the crowd when you're going good, and the humming in your head when you're hurting down. It ain't like nothing else in the world. Once you're in it, you can't get away. It's back a few years in New York, I'd fought a prelim at St. Nick's against a big muscle-bound ape, and he almost ruined me. But in the sixth round, I caught up with him, and the way he hit the canvas, I knew it was all over. After the fight, I dropped in at Harry's, a bar over on 2nd Avenue. Stayed at a hotel, and I guess I needed a drink. Hello, Joe. Hello, Harry. What'll it be? Dear. Yep. How'd it go tonight? Tough. Yeah, I know. Thanks. I caught the last two rounds on television just before the main event. Give me another. Sure. He gave you a hard time on the fifth. Yeah. Did he hurt you? Nah. Looked to me like... What's the matter? Huh? You spilled your beer. I don't know. I'll clean it up. Dizzy. Next one's on the house. Huh. I said to Abe, if Joe would keep us right up, he'd be taking most of those on his glove. That's how you got him on the sixth, wasn't it? What, what? What's the matter with you? 
Nothing. You don't look right. It's nothing. Well, drink your beer. Yeah. Look out, you're going to spill it again. Here. Thanks. How many you had tonight? Oh, you wasn't even oh, reaching right. in the... Brought your fight tonight. Oh, Harry. Hi, Mr. Lasky. Main event was a stinker. Kid got belted in a second. I heard. Looked like he was having a hard time. I'm okay. Big guy can hit. Yeah. You come a long way. A year ago, you never would have caught him. No. Will you introduce me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Joe West, Jane Howard. Hello, Joe. Hello. Hello, Lynn. I'll see you, Harry. Sure, Joe. What's the matter with him? How you feeling, Joe? Tired, I guess. Sure you are. Anything special you'd like to hear? No. Just something slow and easy, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Well, let's see. Uh, how about, uh... I hadn't anyone... Tell you. I was a lonely one. Tell you. You like music? Huh? I used to fly away. I do. And wonder. Don't you belong to Lasky? I came with him. I don't belong to him. As someone. It's a pretty song. You better go back. Why? I don't know you better. I'm sorry. It's all right. Tired. I know. I'm a fighter. I know. Okay. Stay. That's how it happened. Look, a couple of words, and that was it. Something about her, like like a little girl, I don't know. The way she talked, the way she said my name. Made me want to fight for her. Or cry for her. I knew it wasn't right. I tried to tell her, but it was what she wanted, and we got married. From then on, she was always with me. Seattle, Portland, Sacramento, San Francisco. hundred dirty little rooms in a hundred towns, she was there. I never let her see me fight, but when I come home late at night, she'd be waiting for me, and I'd tell her everything that happened. Sometimes I'd be mad if I'd lost, if I'd had a dizzy spell. I'd hurt her, but she always understood. She'd feed me, bandage my cuts, say my name that way. And everything would be all right again. I was in Reno about six months later. I fought a tough little punk from New Jersey, and I was late getting back to the hotel. Baby? Baby? Joe? I didn't know you was asleep. I got tired. It's okay. You all right? Of course I'm all right. Come here, Joe. Uh, the light. Leave it on. <sighs> Did he hurt you? No. You're cut. That's nothing. Oh, it's nothing, I said. I lost. Yes. It's crazy. I was going good till the fourth. Had him tied up in the corner and he was hurt. Then he lets fly with a wild one, catches me on the ear. I couldn't get going after that. Saw the openings. I was late every time. It's all right. Hands were like lead. I couldn't move them. Late every time. It's all right, Joe. Saw the openings. Couldn't come in. Did he hurt you? 
No, what do you keep asking for? You're so late. Well, no, he didn't hurt me. You've been drinking? So what if I had? Nothing. I lost the fight, you understand? He had me on Queer Street in the ninth. I'm lucky to get through the round. What are you trying to do? I didn't mean anything. I needed a drink. I was rocky. When I come out with a temper... All right, Joe. I'll get you something to eat. I don't want anything. Lie down and rest. Won't take long. I don't want anything. Lie down. (sighs) Did you mail the letters? Huh? Did you... What letters? I... What letters? Joe. Tell me. Please. Where are they? I... I put them in your pocket. I asked you to mail them. It's nothing, Joe. You just forgot. What's that? What? That thing. It's a Victrola. Where'd you get it? I thought you'd like it. Where'd you get it? I only made a down payment on it. Why? It's so lonesome, Joe, waiting for You know I don't want a lot of junk to cart around. I got a nut that carries it is. I'll take it back tomorrow. This racket, you gotta move, you gotta move light. You tie me down. I'll take it back. I don't back. want it, I don't want it. Just listen to it. Maybe it'll help. No. Listen to it. Remember? I'll turn it off. Leave it on. Baby, baby. Oh, it's all right. What am I doing? What am I say I love you? I know. Remember that? I love you. Yes. I don't want to hurt you. You're I don't not. Wanna... Jesus, wait. I'll be punchy in four months. Shh. Maybe I'll go haywire, but I love you. Get away from it. No. Give it up. There are other ways to make money. That's all I know. Please. Look, it's it's, it's in me. I can't get it out. Baby. It's all right now. Joe. Well, after that thing started to break right for me, I put together 12 wins in a row the last three main events. Papers began giving me the big build-up. Lou Getzi, my manager, was talking about a crack at the title, said we'd better start working our way east. Everywhere we went, the crowds was good, and the sports writers was calling me the up-and-coming challenger. With all the noise and everything, Jane seemed to get used to the idea of me staying in a fight game. At least she didn't say nothing more about it. She had the victrola and the song and me, and she said that was enough. I was in Chicago about a year later. Lou had signed me into the Coliseum for the main event with Jackie Graham. Everybody said this was it. The winner was sure to get a crack at the kid and the title. Jane had been after me to let her see me fight, but it was Lou's idea to let her come to this one. He said I needed a lift. Graham was good, fast on his feet. He could hit hard with both hands. We fell each other out for the first two rounds, but in the third, he caught me coming off the ropes, and I went down for an eight count. I hang on for the rest of the round, but when I go back to my corner, I know I'm hurt. I look down the third row at Jane. She's trying to smile back. In the fourth round, he got me in a corner and gave it to me with both hands. The crowd was on his feet yelling for the kill, but I covered up and took everything he had to give. When I went back to my corner, Lou ran out with a sponge in his hands, flicking water in my face. How you feel, Joe? Rocky. Smell this. 
More. No, that's enough. Ice bag on that Ivic. How's he hit? Hard. You took everything he had. Yeah. He'll be tired next round. Where's Jane? Now forget about her. Where's she? She's there. I'm not looking. Forget she'll... her. You got a fight on your hands. Now be careful, Joe. Yeah. Stay away from that right. Yeah, yeah. Feel him out. Yeah. Feel the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Feel him out, Lee said. Feel him out. I kept my right high and stung him with a couple of lefts. Graham looked surprised. He closed in. I felt his right drive in hard under my heart. Couldn't beat him close in. I had to back off. Take him fight my way. I pushed him off. His right caught me on the side of the head. It was a good punch, but it didn't hurt. He was slowing up, and it didn't hurt. I backed off and looked at his feet. Sure, that was it. He was down on his heels, flat-footed, and his timing was off. I jabbed him, stepped back. He threw his right and missed. And I saw he was off balance, wide open, so I tried it again. Jab, stepped back. His right whistled past my head, and I crossed with my right. His head snapped back. His mouthpiece flew out of his mouth, and he grabbed and held on. When a ref broke, his grand was glassy eyed in his hand, reached out for the rope. I looked up at the clock. Still a minute to go. Gren was on his bicycle now, but I caught him in a corner right over his manager and let him have it. Right and left of the body and the right to the head. I could hear somebody screaming for him to cover up. Then my glove drove hard into his face and dropped to the canvas. Not the corner! Not the corner! I want to see Graham. Eyes out, kid. Leave him alone. Oh, you look beautiful, see. Joe. You look like a champ. Cover up, kid, and keep moving. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Yeah. The time, two minutes and 36 seconds of the fifth round. The winner by a knockout, Joe West. Come on, Jim, let's get out of here. All right. Watch the rope. Yeah. Atta boy. All right, let us through, please. All right, stand back, folks. Let us through, will you? Stand back, please. Let the boy get out of here. All right, break it up, folks. Yeah. Break it up. Yeah. Where, where's Jane? She'll be along in a minute. I want, uh, I want to see her. I told her to meet us in the dressing room. Uh, yeah, you want... are great, kid. You know what this means to us? Uh, yeah, a yeah, chance yeah. at the big dough like we always wanted. Yeah. Come on, boy. Get up on the table. Yeah. Jane? Uh, she'll be along. Uh, right hand. Hey, uh, Grandma. Yeah. He'll be okay. There. Left. I never saw you throw a better punch. There. Now, lie down. Oh, baby. Are you all right? Huh? Did he hurt you? I couldn't watch. Yeah, Kept hitting and hitting and everyone was yelling. Baby, baby, Are you sure. all right? Sure, I'm all right. He didn't hurt you bad? Yeah. I couldn't watch, Joe. I wanted to, but I couldn't. I know. It was awful. It's all right now, All baby. right, come on, Janie. We've got to work on our boy before he stiffens up. I'm sorry. Lie down, kid. It's the first time I've ever... Yeah, yeah, I know. Hey, hey, take it easy, Lou. <laughs> What's the matter? Oh, I forgot to tell you. What, Joe? The cleaner brought back that dress he lost today. Oh, that's good. Ah, uh, buy a hundred someday. You know, despite me's a crack at the title. Yeah, they're more than a crack if Joe keeps going like he is. Will that make you happy? Sure, baby, sure. You see the way he bounced back tonight? He was hurt in the fourth, hurt bad. But he come back and nailed his man in the next round. That's fighting. All right, other leg. Yeah. Uh, thought he had you in the fourth, sure. Yeah, Graham's good. Yeah, sure he's good, but uh, you're better. <laughs> uh, oh, you know that dress the cleaner lost, baby? Watch it. He brought it back today. Lou. Hey, he's tired, Janie. Yeah, he's tired. What's the matter? Nothing, Joe, nothing. Well, come on, come on. I gotta get out of here. That's uh, probably reporters. Can't they come back later? Yeah, I'll brush them off. All right, boys, break it up. Now take it easy, will you? Come on. Where's Lou going? He'll be back. Uh, tough fight. 
Lie back and rest. I spied it, Grim. Lie back. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Trina brought back that dress he lost. I know, Joe. Uh, buy a hundred when I get that title. Yes, Joe. I know. Well, after that, Lou and Jane decided I need a rest. So we moved to New York so Lou could start working on the title bot. Me and Jane found a little two-room apartment on the west side. First time since I was a kid, I'd lived in one place for more than a week. Felt good. I worked out at Stillman's gym every day, and at night we'd stop in at Harry's and they could play the song. I knew they were worried about me because Lou never let me do any contact work, and every once in a while Jane would talk about getting out of the fight game, but I think they both knew I couldn't stop now, not with the little title standing me in her face. Look, money don't last forever, and after a couple of months I got tired of doing nothing. Sitting still's okay for guys that like it. It wasn't for me. I missed the lights and the crowds and going places and doing things. I kept after Lou. Get her signed up. And then one day we went down to the garden and they drew up the papers. Ah, it's a big deal. A lot of people. Borders, pictures of me shaking hands with a kid. My kind of living. I was on top of the world when I got back to the apartment that afternoon. But Jane wasn't there. I walked around, kicking at the furniture, wondering where she was when she'd be back. And I turned on the patroller. I lay down in the bed. I stood excited to sleep. Just later, with my hands behind my head, thinking of the fight and the title. My watch was ticking in my ear. Oh, sorry. Hey, draw me another, huh? Sure, Joe. Here you are. Thanks. See, I can pick it up just like that. Nothing to it. Sure you can, Joe. Nothing to it. Hello, Joe. Huh? Who are you? Sure you can. I'm Jane. Say, you're some looker. Do you like music? Me? I'm nuts about music. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> you know we're going places, you and me. Are we? Sure we are. I love you. Joe loves Jane. Yeah. Jane loves Joe. You were terrific, Joe. Yeah, we're going to the top of the world, baby. That a promise? Sure. He never laid a hand on you. Don't forget. I never forget. Had him from the word go. Yeah, he's a pushover. Sure he was. Where's Jane? Back at the dressing room. Come on, let's hurry. Take it easy. Joe. Joe, you were wonderful. Yeah, how'd you like it? He was a pushover. It was wonderful. You weren't scared? Of course not. That's my girl. Did you mail my letters? Sure, I told you. I never forget. I love you. Come on, kid. Gotta get you in shape for the title. Yeah. Joe. Get you in shape for the title. Ah, I never felt better in my life. Joe. Shape for the title. Okay, Lou. Joe. Huh? The title. Joe, it's the me. The title. What? The title. I... The title. Oh. The title. Oh, baby. The title. Are you all right? The yeah, title. Yeah, sure, sure. The you left the title. The title. I did? You the shut title. It off. The title. Are you sure you're all right? Oh, sure. I'm all right, baby. I. I, uh. I mailed the letters. What letters? The letters you get. What is it, Joe? It's nothing. It's nothing, baby. You lie there and rest. No, no, I'm sick of resting. I, uh. Oh, I, I wanted to tell you something. What, Joe? I... I can't... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We signed for the title today, baby. 
Oh. Yeah, I wanted to tell you. Where you been? I... I've been out. Where? I went to see the doctor. What did you do that for? Please. I don't need a doctor. Joe. I never felt better in my life. I didn't go to see him about you. You what? I'm going to have a baby. A baby? Yes, Joe. No. What? I said no. But... I don't want it, you hear? Joe. I don't want it. Tying me down, I don't want it. I told you, I gotta move. I gotta move right. It's part of the fight game. It's part of me, and I don't want it no other way. You're tying me down. I don't want any part of it. All right. All right. No. Don't play. I'll break it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. It wasn't the same after Jane left. I moved out of the apartment. Left the broken victrola all our things and went back to the hotel where I belonged. I couldn't get her out of my mind. Work and help, so I worked all the time. I got so Lou had a hard time finding pugs for me to work on. They said I was kill crazy and nobody going to the ring with me. Lou kept trying to slow me down, but they didn't do no good. Punch, 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 that's all I wanted. Weeks dragged by and then the night of the fight came. The garden was packed to the roof. When I went in the ring, the mob got up on its feet and yelled like, this is it, this is the top of the world. And the kid came in the ring. We're out in the center shaking hands, and the ref was talking. Rosa, New York State Athletic Commission. When I tell you to break, I want you to break. And I was back in my corner. Lou was taking off my robe. I dug my feet in the rosin. Lou hit me on the back, and the bell rang. And I went after him from the bell. Bob and Reed jab and cross. Keep following, waiting in. The kid looked surprised and backed off. He was coming. I kept his left stuck out there in my face. I was taking punches, but I was given three for one. So at the end of the round, I got him in his corner, and the kid slipped and fell in a wet spot. The crowd was yelling, but he got up and laughed, so I closed in. Come on, Brian. Get lost your head, Joe. No. Slow down. You won't go five rounds with that right. I know what I'm doing. You're crazy. I'm doing a fight. You listen to me. Yeah? That kid's good. He'll knock your head off to keep like this. Now, slow down. Yeah. You hear me, Joe? Yeah, yeah, Slow yeah. down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Slow down, Lou said. How could I slow down when I've been waiting for this one all my life? The kid was dancing and weaving. I waited in and went after him. Right and left, left and right. Counter, Perry. No time to faint. Just stand and slug out. In the middle of the round, he tied me up in a rope, and I heard his voice in my ear. What are you trying to do, Wes? I'm knocking you out, kid. Okay, wise guy. Right, fella. Right, yeah. Then he was backing off and grinning, and I went after him again. Jab and cross, jab and cross. I left the shoe for the heart and close. I looked over the clock. Fifteen seconds ago, the kid was coming off the ropes. I threw my right and caught him on a ear, and he went down. Crazy, John. Yeah? I spent seven years building you up, and you're throwing it away because you're crazy. Hit him tonight. If you don't slow down, I'm through. Yeah? Gonna walk out of your corner, that's all. Okay, okay. Now, you listen to what I'm saying. He'll stay away from you because you hurt him. But you watch him, Joe. He's smart. Watch him. Yeah, sure, Lou. Lou was right. The kid wasn't grinning no more. He was backing off and moving around. His left stung me. When I crossed with my right, he wasn't there. I followed him around the ring, but his left was always in my face, and I was missing with my right. Then we were tied up in the center of the ring. His voice was in my ear again. Okay, West, you've had your problem. Yeah. Sweet dreams. I don't know where it came from, but a glove drove into my face, and my whole head exploded. I tried to shake off the blow, but the ropes was twisting in front of me, and the canvas was waving like a flag. Way off, I heard the ref counting. I knew I had to get up. 
What did he say? Seven? Six? Seven? Get up. I gotta get up. I pulled my feet under me and grabbed the twisting rope. Then I was standing up and the ref was wiping my gloves on his shirt. The kid's face was a blur around me and I felt his blows hit me four and five at a time. And somewhere far away, I heard the bell. Lou had me around the chest and was dragging me to the corner. How you feel, Joe? You spilled your beer. Huh? How you feel? The letters, Joe. Oh, no, no, I'm okay. Want me to stop it? The title. No, 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 I'm okay. Smell this. Give it up, Joe. I'm okay, I tell you. Now stay away from him, Joe. The title. Yeah, yeah. Stay away from him. Give it up. No. Stay away from him, Joe. Title. Title, yeah. My legs felt like rubber when I stepped down into the ring and I tried to lift my hands, but the gloves were heavy. A kid was dancing around me. I didn't know where he was coming from next. This crashed into my jaw and then I drove hot into my stomach and I grabbed and held on. Then the ref focused and the kid was all over me. I tried to cover it up, but there was too many gloves I couldn't see. I felt the ropes against my back and a fist exploded in my face and I fell to the canvas. This is Lou, Joe. Open your eyes. The title. Give it up, Couldn't get Joe. off. How do you feel? Couldn't get off. Joe, give it up. this is Lou. Lou. Lou? Yeah. How do you feel? The title. Okay. Give it up, Joe. The reporters want to come in. You up to it? Reporters? Yeah. The title. You up to it? Give it up, Joe. Yeah. All right, not too long, fella. Now, you just have to say, I'll take it easy. We just want to ask him. How do you feel, Joe? I'm okay. What happened out there tonight? The title. Couldn't get off. What was the punch that got you? I, uh, I don't know. Any plans for the future? Give it up, Joe. Couldn't get off. You want another crack at the title? The title. What? The title. What? Listen. You better come back later, fellas. He's not ready yet. All right. Come on, I'll break it up for you, boy. Joe, you take it easy. I'll be back in a minute. Come on. All right. The title. 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 Give it up, Joe. Give it up, Joe. Give it up, Joe. Joe, what are you doing here? Give it up, Joe. Couldn't get off. Joe, look at me. This is Harry. Harry? Yeah, how'd you get here? I... I don't know. Give it up, Joe. You're all wet. You okay? Give it up, Joe. Couldn't get off. You need a doc. Give it up, Go on back and sit down. Give it up, Joe. Give it up, Joe. Give it up, Joe. Hello, Joe. Sorry about the fight. Give it up, Joe. I couldn't get off. Give it up, Joe. Of course Joe. you couldn't, Joe. Know just what you mean. Give it up, Joe. Broke the record, Abe. Uh, Give it up, when Joe. When I was too bad. Broke Jane's record. Up, Joe. Well, that's the way it goes sometimes. You, up, you just Joe. listen, Joe. 
I'll put it right back together again. I had anyone to you. Give it up, Joe. I was a lonely one. I never forget. I know. Just listen to the song. I'll never give my love. I spill my dear. Listen. Top of the world, huh, baby? Top of the world. Joe. Darkened Ring, the story of a man who almost lost his right to a future in the violence of the present. Well, friends, because of a special broadcast, we won't be with you next week. However, if you like Joe's story, why don't you join us two weeks from this time? I'll have a man who learned that a misplaced love can lead to destruction. I like to call it men under pressure. So until then, this is John Steele saying, A life of adventure is yours for the asking, wherever you find it. Only don't look for it. It may find you. Well, goodbye and good hunting. John Steele came from New York. Follow clues down Mutual's Mystery Lane to further thrills and chills. Along the Sunday Avenue of Mystery and Suspense are Martin Kane, the two-fisted gumshoe, the shadow in a cloak of invisibility, true detective mysteries with real-life cases, and Nick Carter, master detective. Weekdays here, I Love a Mystery, every night over most of these stations, with the fabulous adventures of Jack, Doc, and Reggie in eerie investigations. Remember, all roads lead to Mutual when you travel the mystery trail. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. The Darkened Ring, an episode of John Steele Adventurer from the fall of 1950 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Finally tonight... Another dark tale, this one called Dark Journey, and it comes from that master of terror, Lucille Fletcher. She was a versatile radio writer, but she was best known for her nail-biting tales, including The Hitchhiker, the Orson Welles version of which we played just a few weeks ago, and the classic Sorry Wrong Number. This one's a very demanding two-hander, but the veteran actors Nancy Kelly whose centennial is this year, and Kathy Lewis never let you know how hard they're working. Here, from April 25th, 1946, is Lucille Fletcher's Dark Journey from the CBS series Suspense. Now, Roma Wines. 
R-O-M-A. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Roma Wines present... Suspense. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Miss Nancy Kelly and Miss Kathy Lewis in Dark Journey. A suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, as Roma Wines bring you Nancy Kelly and Kathy Lewis in the premiere of Lucille Fletcher's radio play for two actresses, Dark Journey. Tonight's study in... Suspense. Today I am going on a journey. I am going to see Anne Brody again after 15 years. When the news came yesterday, terrible as it was, it was as though a shadow had lifted from my life. A secret horror that I could never quite forget. I have been afraid of Anne Brody now for 15 years. But there is no need to be afraid of her anymore. Anne's secret has been locked in my heart together with all shameful, horrible things. Yet I've never gone on a journey like this one but what it comes back. There have been times when I couldn't bear the whistle of the train flung out long and mournful over the lonely countryside. I couldn't bear the smell of a day coach, the feel of the plush seats, the rattle and bustle. Only because everything came back. Every detail of that long and terrible weekend we spent together 15 years ago. I don't think anybody saw it, do you? No. Only old Mr. Hodgins, the station master, and he's no gossip. I wouldn't want anybody to know. Not that I care, but you know how the tongues wag in this town. Well, it's much better to be perfectly sure of your plans before you pass the word around. Then if you and Clyde don't settle things, then nobody will be any the wiser. <laughs> if we don't settle things, well, there's no if about it. But Clyde and I are practically engaged. Did you get his letter yet about us coming to New York? Uh-huh. Well, for goodness sake, why didn't you tell me? What'd he say? Oh, nothing much. He's, he's no letter writer, just that he was glad and that he's been busy and he's going to call us at the hotel. Oh? He can't meet us at the train? No. Uh, it seems it's his mother's birthday and he promised to take her to lunch in town. We'll be getting in just around that time. He's terribly devoted to her, you know, has been ever since his father died. Oh, I see. You're very much in love with him, aren't you, Anne? Terribly. Yet you really see him so little. How long has it been now? Three months? Three months and six days. But it doesn't really matter. No. I know Clyde loves me and I love him. There's a bond between us. And nothing will ever break it. Well, as long as you feel that way, it's a wonderful way to feel. But I don't think you ought to let it drag on like this much longer, Anne. I really don't. <laughs> don't worry. We'll settle it this time once and for all. You'll see... When we get on this train again, I'll be wearing his engagement ring on my finger. Oh, 
three o'clock. Thought he'd have called me by now. Oh, he's probably tied up with his mother. Come on, let's go down to the drugstore and have a sandwich. Aren't you to stop? No, no, I, I don't feel hungry. You go, though. I'll wait. Oh, come on. The clerk will take the message for No, me. no, I, I want to be here myself. Well, why don't you call him? I can't if he's at a restaurant. Well, maybe he didn't go. Maybe he's home, sick, or, or at the office. No, no, it, it wouldn't look right. He's got to call me. I, I, I don't know why he doesn't. Well, I don't know why either. In fact, why couldn't we all have had lunch together at that restaurant? I mean, he, he's not exactly poor, is he? Uh, don't you want to take a bus ride or see the sights or anything? Later, Alice. After he's called. Hello? Yes? Oh, yes, this is Miss Ann Brody. What? He, he left a message. Oh. Thank you. What is it? He... Stopped by and left a message. He has a previous engagement. A previous engagement when he knew I was coming to New York this weekend only to see him. Well, maybe it was something he couldn't get out of. Maybe on account of his mother. But he already gave her today. And after all, he knew I was coming. He knew I'd want to be with him every possible minute. Well, maybe that's the trouble, Anne. Maybe he doesn't want to be pinned down. Maybe you expect too much. But he was right here in the hotel and he didn't even... Oh, he's grown away from me. He's not mine anymore. Alice, Alice, you know what Clyde has meant to me these three years, how I've lived for him and worshipped him. It's... Oh, it's just as though my, my world has been cut away. It's like, it's like having a lump of ice for a heart. Alice, Clyde is my heart. Oh, I, I've got to see him. I've got to tell him. Oh, Anne, dear, wouldn't you like to lie down? No, no, I can't lie down. I'm free to sit here in, in this chair by the window. I wish you'd go, Alan. I want to be quiet and think and think about him. And I wouldn't. Something's happened to him. There's some barrier. I've got to wish it away, to break it down. What are you talking about? I can do it, you know. And please go. Please. Don't tell me it's nine o'clock. I didn't mean to sleep so late. We better get up and get breakfast. Alice. Alice, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He hasn't called me. I haven't slept. Why don't you call him, Anne? Call him and have it out with him once and for all. No, no, I, I couldn't. Well, maybe there's something bothering him. Maybe it's some family situation. After all, his mother didn't have lunch with you yesterday. Maybe there, maybe there was a reason. What reason could there be except that she didn't want to meet me? She doesn't want him to marry anybody. She wants them all to herself. Well, isn't that enough to upset any fellow? Oh, come on. We'll get to the bottom of this thing. What's his number? I'll get it for you. I, I haven't his number. I never called him at home. But his address is 3254 Sunset Drive, Riverdale, New York. 3254 Sunset Drive, Riverdale, New York. Hello. Uh, hello, operator. This is room 351. We want to put in a call to Riverdale, New York. Uh, 3254 Sunset Drive, Riverdale, New York. Uh, the name is Dexter. Mr. Clyde Dexter. Will you get it for us, please? What did she say? She's looking it up. Uh, there it is. She's ringing. Here, you better take it now. Oh, no. No, just one minute. One minute. Let me get my breath. 
Let me think of what I'm going to say. Hello? Is this the Dexter residence? This is Miss Ann Brody speaking. I wonder if I might speak to Mr. Clyde Dexter, please. Thank you. Clyde? Oh, Clyde, this is Anne. Oh, I'm, I'm fine, thank you. Oh, Clyde, I've been waiting here at the hotel for you to call, and Alice and I have to spend the morning out, and we thought we'd better let you know we wouldn't be in just in case you wanted... Oh, yes, Clyde, I, I know you said you had a previous engagement, but I thought... Well, you see, Clyde, I'm only going to be here today, and we get to see each other so little, I was wondering... What's that, Clyde? Yes? Yes? Well, no, I, I didn't. What did you say, Clyde? I, I didn't understand. You're what? You're... Oh, Clyde. Oh, Clyde, it's not true. It, it can't be. But, Clyde, wait. But, Clyde, you can't do this to me. I... I've considered myself engaged to Anne, you. I... Anne, give me that phone. No. Oh, no. I just want to say goodbye to him, please. No. Anne, don't, don't look that way. What did he say? He, he told me he's engaged to marry a New York girl this September. Oh, Anne. Well, he, he just isn't worthy of you. He couldn't have been if he treats you like this now. I love him. I love him. I love him till the day I die. <laughs> Anne, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm... Oh, please, Alice, please don't talk. Don't come near me or go away, will you, just for a little while? Oh, no, I won't leave you. I can't leave you when, when you look like oh, that. Go away, I said. How do you hear me? Go away. I want to be alone. I want you to go away. I... I have work to do. Work to do? I'm... I'm going to will him to come back to me. I'm going to make him come to this hotel through heaven and hell. And they're dragging him away from me. Oh, Anne. I can do it. I've done it before. I've made him write to me. I've made him call me up out of a clear sky after months and months. I willed him to speak to me the very first time I saw him when he was just a stranger. I willed him to give me his fraternity pin last year at the spring dance, and I can do it. I can do it. If only I try hard enough, and, and if you're absolutely quiet. Clyde. Clyde. Oh, it's no use. He's too far away. Uh, I'll have to come closer to him. We're going out. Going out? Where to? To Riverdale. Riverdale? I want to look at his house to see where he lives. There's something there. Someone who's holding him back. Anne, let's go back to Denford. Let's take a train tonight, any train, and get out of here for good. No, I can't go home. I told you that before. I can't until I have his engagement ring on my finger. <laughs> Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Nancy Kelly and Kathy Lewis in Dark Journey by Lucille Fletcher. Roma Wines presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense.
And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Kathy Lewis as Alice and Nancy Kelly as Anne in Dark Journey, a play well calculated to keep you in suspense. about her. She always turned her nose up at me. He never admitted it, but I knew. He was the only son, and she thought there wasn't anybody good enough, and, and he was always under her influence, just believed everything she said. I could tell the way he talked. It was always mother says this, and mother says that. I bet it was she who turned him against me who picked out that, that New York girl. Oh, Anne, please, come on. You're just tearing your heart She's out. She's up in his room now. She's straightening his things. She's happy up there. She doesn't care that she's made me miserable. Oh, I can feel it now, Alice. I can feel the barrier in my heart. Shh, something's coming. Let's go. We're doing no harm. We can stare, can't we, if we wish? Come on. Come on, we'll walk past the house. We'll fire. We'll go up and ring the bell. And, and then when she comes down to answer it, we'll ask, Is Mrs. Clyde Dexter at home? And then when she answers who we mean, we'll laugh at her face. Oh, Anne, you're, you're just beside yes, yourself. Yes, I am. I am beside myself because I feel it, Alice. He's lost to me as long as she's up there. Oh, I can stand here, out here under the trees, trying to reach him with every bit of soul I possess. But as long as she's there, as long as she's alive, he'll never be mine again. You've got to pull yourself together and get some rest. You've been sitting in that chair now for three hours. Please, don't talk. Just let me alone. You're... You're working on that willpower thing still, aren't you, Anne? 
and it, it makes me awfully nervous. Be quiet. It's coming. Something's coming. Something's going to happen. I feel it all around. I'm going to get a doctor if you don't stop. Shh, shh. I feel it. I feel something. You're just as white as a sheet. You're shaking all over. I absolutely refuse to let this go on. Do you hear? Now, you, you get into bed. No. Let me take off no, your shoes. No, no, no. Leave me alone. It's as though there were a big lump being moved off my heart. As though the ice inside me were going. As though I, I could cry at last. Oh, it's happened. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you. All right. I'll lie down now. I'll go to sleep. If you could sleep, you'd feel better. If you just relax. I've done it, Alice. You'll see. He'll be here in the morning. You lie down now. There he is. Didn't I tell you? There's Clyde now. Hello? Yes. Yes, this is room 351. Yes, this is Ann Brody speaking. Yes. It's Riverdale calling. Riverdale. Clyde? She didn't say. Oh, hello. Yes. Yes, I'm Ann Brody. Why, yes, I'm a friend of Mr. Clyde Dexter. Who did you say this is, please? The, the police. The police. Oh, something hasn't happened to Mr. Dexter, has it? Oh. What? Yes. Yes, my friend and I were out to the house late this afternoon, around six o'clock. Well, yes, I I did wear a white hat and a green dress, and, and she... W oh, but we took the subway, the White Plains Express, on the Interboro line from our hotel. We came back around seven. We, well, we just walked past the house two or three times, but... Well, what's the matter? Why are you asking me these questions? No, I haven't seen them. I... What? Give me the phone, Anne. Let me speak to them. You're in no condition to tell You know what they're saying, do you? That Clyde's mother has been murdered. What? Oh, no. No, I haven't. Yes? No. No, we didn't. We just came right home. We didn't even ring the bell. Is Mr. Destica there with you? I see. Well, I'd like to speak to him, please, when he gets through. Will you ask him to call me? Yes. We'll stay here in the room. Oh, Anne. It was a hammer. At 8 o'clock tonight. She was struck from behind by an unknown assailant. Oh, how awful. Well, why did the police call us? What have we got to do with it? Clyde was home when we walked by the house. He saw us standing there. I'm going to tell him, Alice. I'm going to tell him the truth. Truth? What truth? There's always been that power inside me. I've known I had it, and sometimes it frightened me. Things have happened. I've been afraid sometimes to use it, afraid it would turn against me. And tonight it did turn against me. And what do you mean? By an unknown assailant. Murdered by an unknown assailant. You know who that assailant was? It was me. Anne, are you crazy? You you were up here in, in the room every minute. I was up here in the room, but I was wishing she were dead. I was willing him to come to me. I was trying to destroy the barrier. Oh, surely you can't believe that, Anne. It was, it was only a coincidence, a terrible coincidence. I was trying to bring him back, to touch his heart, but the power didn't touch his heart. His heart's like steel against me. It, 
struck his heart and glanced off and struck her dead. Anne, please, you're talking like a... But you don't understand. People like you can understand. People like you... But there's violence to will. To store it up takes years. To send it out of yourself is like... Like sending a powerful hand with fingers. Will can't kill somebody, Anne. Not pure will. The body is one thing, the mind's another. Mrs. Dexter is physically dead. Her heart stopped beating. There was a blow. Somebody real, somebody human did that. She was struck from behind. She was alone in the house. They said the doors were locked. She had no enemies. It came out of nothing, and it went away again. Oh, I, I never dreamed. I didn't want it to happen that way, but... But it's getting beyond me. It's assuming forms and accomplishing ends I don't plan. It's, it's turning against me, Alice. Turning against me. Do you think a police court will believe you? You'll only confuse the testimony. You'll only hurt Clyde. Oh, will. Will. You talk about the power of your will. Did you have any real power these last two days? Did it bring Clyde to this hotel? Did it make him love you or even call you up? Yes. 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 Don't you touch him. I won't let you speak to him. Get away from that phone, Alice. Do you want to get us in trouble? Do you want us to go to jail and spend weeks in court? He'd put you there. He wouldn't care. Get away from that phone, Alice. I don't believe you, do you hear? I think you're mad. You're mad as a hatter. Get away from that phone. No! Anne, you'll ruin your life. You'll fall into suspicion, and people will always think you had something really to do with it. You'll, you'll end up in an asylum. The whole world will know he jilted you. What, what are you going to say to him? He must be half beside himself as it is. He'll, he'll never believe you. What? All right. Thank you, Alice. You see? It is there, isn't it? I made you do what I wanted. <laughs> and I can make anyone. Hello? Hello, Clyde. Oh, Clyde, darling, I just heard the terrible news. How terrible for you. I'm so sorry. Yes, Alice and I were out there this afternoon. We came by to say hello, but we got cold feet and came home. Oh, no, Clyde, no, we did not a soul. Oh, yes, my darling, I I understand how terribly broken up and, and my heart goes out to you. Oh, I will, Clyde, dearest. I will. I'll be right over. I'll help you in any way I know. Goodbye, Clyde. Anne. You didn't tell him. You're not going to tell him at all. No. Why should I? He's mine now. walked out of my life, walked from me wrapped in her new and terrible strangeness. Somehow I didn't want to play any part in her life again. I didn't go to her wedding when she and Clyde were married one year later. To me, there would have been something evil in hearing her voice repeat the sacred word. I am. Take thee, Clyde. There has been for me... 
A nameless horror in a slow, steady way, Anne Brody fulfilled her plans. The house in Riverdale, the car, the three children, Peter, Clyde Jr., and Charlotte. Her happiness, her triumphant motherhood had somehow been hideous to me. I've never heard a train whistle crying through the dawn but what I've thought of her and shuddered. I have been afraid of Anne Brody now for 15 years. Today, I know I've been a fool. Today, I know that it was a real murderer who murdered Mrs. Dexter with a hammer from the service porch. Today, I'm going on a journey to Riverdale. I am going to see Anne Brody again, lying willless and struck down in her coffin, lying innocent and pathetic, lying murdered. Not will, nor nameless monsters of the mind could save her from the truth at last. Yesterday afternoon, the weak, long, brooding creature who could not brook domination from mother or wife flung pent-up death against the mistress of his will. Yesterday afternoon, Clyde Dexter struck again. Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines. R-O-M-A. Made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. This is Nancy Kelly. I'm sure you want to hear next Thursday Suspense when Joseph Cotton will star as a famous New York criminal lawyer in one of the best-known suspense stories of our time. Ben Hecht's Crime Without Passion. Thank you. Nancy Kelly will soon be seen in the Paramount picture, Follow That Woman. Next Thursday, same time, Joseph Cotton as star of Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Produced by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. Next week, part of the country goes on daylight saving time. If your area remains on standard time, tune in Suspense one hour earlier. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Journey, a Lucille Fletcher script for suspense from exactly 75 years ago tonight. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight, but it's April 25th, and that's a special date in American music, the birthday of Ella Fitzgerald. Born in 1917, she passed away 25 years ago, leaving a legacy that places her in the very highest rank of American singers. We'll hear a performance now that'll give us the jump on another celebration, the centennial later this year, of the Broadway composer Richard Adler. It's a song he wrote with the lyricist Jerry Ross, and it was a surprise hit from their score for the hit show, The Pajama Game. Recorded for Verve Records on October 2, 1962, and arranged and conducted by Marty Page, it's Ella Fitzgerald singing Hernando's Hideaway. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.